This episode of The Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel, Edward Hart, Jamal Lobb, and David Morris, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of The Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Hello, Demination, and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and the Genesis Roleplaying Game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have another awesome show for you this week. In Diecasting, we'll be haggling over the negotiation skill, which is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to open up the furnace to continue our series on understanding magic. Um, and in Breaking the Bold, we're going to be talking to David Morris about his Monstrum Encyclopedia. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to my favourite spellcaster, purveyor of all things arcane, better known as the Wicked Wizard of the South, South East. It's GM Chris. Chris, how are you going? I'm just casting a deadly spell, man. <laughs> you know... <laughs> No houses falling on you lately or anything? No, my pretty. And I'll get you and your little and your little Barbie too. Shouldn't that be shrimp? But or something. But anyway. How you doing, brother? I'm good, except that I'm sweltering in heat. We've got a heat wave going on here in Australia at the moment. Uh, if we're not all burning, um, half of our country is on fire. Uh, so uh, so yeah, that's been a lot of fun this week. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I I can imagine. Well, it's nice and cool where I am, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> oh, very good. It's not snowing. Could you guys don't get don't get snow much down there, do you? Uh, maybe a couple days out of the year. That's it. Oh, nice. We do get ice though. We get ice storms pretty bad. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that that usually happens in like the early February time period. So uh-huh. we're a ways away, and we're 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 okay. We're we're okay. But you know what the good <laughs> thing about snow and ice is? What is that? You get to stay home and read awesome content from the Foundry. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you reckon? Should we take a look at what's on the Foundry this week? Oh, I I definitely think we should. We've had some very interesting releases since our last show. So Mm. let's take a look in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? I'd love to, because I love the show. If you guys are a fan of Star Wars lore and the expanded universe, you've got to be listening to the Guardians of the Wills podcast. Join Neil and Dustin uh, for not only reviews of all the novels and the comics in the EU eras, but amazingly produced actual play episodes 
using Fantasy Flight Games' Star Wars RPG. Um, in their latest episode, uh, GM Dustin and his crew bring forth the epic conclusion to A New Fear, uh, their first actual play, play campaign. Plus, they talk everything Mandalorian. Mm. So go check them out um, and let them take you to that galaxy far, far away where we all long and yearn to be. Ah. <laughs> Which we will be at the end of this month, won't we? <laughs> oh, yeah. And you guys can find uh, <laughs> you guys can find the Guardians of the Wills and many more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. Love that show. I can't get enough of it. Uh, I listen to it on the way to work, and um, I keep on listening to it because I love Star Wars uh, actual play podcasts, which there aren't all that many I've since found out um, that are still running anyway. So, um, so yeah, but um, so thanks to uh, to Neil and Dustin. It's a great show, as you say, Chris. It's uh, amazingly produced. I, I, I love it. They've done an amazing job. So, yeah. um, Chris, we've um, got some ever so special FFG news, do we not? <laughs> yes, yes, we do indeed. Uh, the expanded player's guide and the GM screen for Genesis is out. I'm holding them in my hands right now. I'm fondling them. Oh, okay, that's, that's not romantic. I'm caressing them lovingly. Um, right. A really, really phenomenal book and a phenomenal GM screen, actually. Yes. Um, loving the trifold design. Mm. Um, and dude, yeah, but oh, it's just so great. It's so great. It's so great. And yes, guys, we'll, we'll talk about it at the end of the show, but we are going to have a dedicated episode to review the Expanded Players Guide. It's coming. But I'm just, I mean, I mean, Hula, do you have your copy yet? I have. Under? Yeah, absolutely. I've got both of my copies. Um, I love the GM screen for no other reason other than that um, it doesn't take up much in the way of vertical space because it is yeah. that sort of landscape design. Um, so they've taken a little bit from uh, from what we see with the D&D for 5th edition screens where, you know, you, you don't need much space to um, to have everything behind, but you, you really want to be able to see players and you don't want to have that barrier, but it's really nice to have a screen there just so that, you know, you, if you need to see charts and whatever else, but um, it's absolutely fantastic. I've only got a small little problem with it, but um, it's not a big one. And that's well, the small problem that I have with it is that it doesn't have the conditions like staggered and immobilized because I can never remember the difference between the two. So, <laughs> so I've got my little um, uh, my little post-it note there, or whatever you guys call it over there, with uh, uh, with what's what. So uh, I'm not. Uh, it's not too bad, but uh, it looks fantastic. The artwork at the front of it is amazing. Um, I got to use it for the first time um, on Sunday, um, where I'm running a Terranoth game. So um, yeah, absolutely love it. It's fantastic. Oh yeah, it, it's great. I I absolutely love it. And the expanded players guide is even more incredibleness. But I don't want to start gushing into it, or we will never stop. It's <laughs> yeah, uh, true. And, and we. Yeah, it's it's just they're, they're absolutely fantastic. If you guys haven't picked them up yet, you really, really need to. Mm. I'm like, I'm holding, I'm holding. Like, I love having um, a GM screen. Yep. But I don't actually use it as a screen because there's nothing I ever need to hide from my players. Right. And I don't like I don't like having the barrier. But I keep it out and I keep it just folded flat down so that I can have easy access to you know critical injury tables, things like that. Mm. And the trifold design. It actually folds in a in an accordion pattern, not like a pamphlet, right? Yeah. Yep. And so when you fold it properly, and it's 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 all folded up into this beautiful 
like hard, you know, uh, eight and a half by 11, you know, a four size package, mm. the text page that's showing the crit table. Yes. That was, and that I'm just was like, smart. that's just perfect design. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant. It's yeah. I'm, uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Absolutely. Love it. Mm. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So I think it's time that we open up the foundry vault and take a look at what's inside. What do you think, Chris? Yes, let's do it. All right, so first up is additional Genesis Foundry graphic assets. Now, it's nothing for the game as such, but it's uh, to help people uh, who are producing content for the Foundry. Uh, and that's from uh, the ever-present Scott Zumwalt. Uh Now, this is a great product from Scott, uh, who really is the master of graphic design uh, within the Genesis community. Um, as I said, it uh, it provides additional graphic elements for the core rulebook, Realms of Terranoth and Shadow of the Beanstalk, uh, with uh, stylings such as stat blocks um, that were not included in the, uh, uh, in the base template offered by FFG. Uh, which you can also still download from uh, DriveThruRPG. Now, these graphics are available in Photoshop um, as well as uh, PNG formats for people who aren't using Photoshop. Um, and uh, some are available in Adobe Illustrator format as well. Um, simple Affinity Publisher templates are also available in the package, which is really, really cool because a lot of people are using Affinity Publishing in this day and age uh, because it's yeah. really cheap in comparison to, you know, the the monthly um, arm that you have to basically donate for uh, for Adobe. Um, and, uh, you know, it's coming in at a whopping pay what you want. So uh, you would be crazy not to download the product. Um, and please, if you are using this package, uh, consider dropping Scott something for his efforts. And that even includes in your product, give him a mention uh, in the um, uh, in the credits page as well. Absolutely, you should. And Scott, if you're listening, brother, and I know you are, God bless you. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so next up, um, is a, a new product from an author we actually spoke about uh, in our last episode. Mm -hmm. And actually, a new author that we will be talking to later in this show, mm. uh, Mr. David Morris of Mount Ogden Gaming Company. Mm -hmm. um, David has presented an add-on for his Monstrum Encyclopedia, uh, The Chimera. Mm -hmm. This is really of a, of a sample document on, on what to find in his Monstrum Encyclopedia. Uh, but it does a really cool few interesting things we're talking about. The first, and we may talk about this with David when we talk to him in a bit, is the layout. It's in landscape. David, God bless you for that. Uh, possibly <laughs> influenced by our discussion with Katrina Ostrander. Oh, maybe. Back in episode six of this very podcast. <laughs> My voice is going to keep getting higher. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, Look, my money's definitely on that. Oh, well, I hope it is anyway. So, uh, But we'll get to ask him very shortly whether that is the case. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Whether that is the case. <laughs> <laughs> Time to bring it down, Chris. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's very cool. David, um, so, uh, David provides stats for the Chimera um, as well as an instant adventure uh, for you to use at your table. Um, and again, this product is a pay what you want. Uh, so go check it out. Indeed. It's really, really good. I love it. Um, next, we have a great little product from Joshua Taylor, who is a fan of the podcast. Um, I met Joshua for the first time at Gamination Con. Uh, last year, yeah. Yeah, and um, I know that uh, he's taking part in the uh, Adventure Writing Academy as well. 
so uh, he's decided to uh, dip his toe in the uh, the foundry pool, so to speak, um, with uh, Critical Elements, a critical injury supplement. Now, Joshua has uh, certainly captured the essence of Genesis with some expanded rules in his product. It includes Genesis Core Rulebook compatible rules to uh, to enhance critical injuries. It has twenty, I repeat, twenty new talents focused on causing and surviving critical injuries. An alternate set of critical injury tables based on hit location, which is quite unusual and really cool. Um, and a discussion on how critical injuries impact your game, including some looks at existing mechanics, frequently asked questions uh, about critical injuries, and of course, how to heal them. Now, this one comes in at $349, and there is a load of stuff in it, uh, which I think is a great price for a product that uh, that does give so much. Yeah, I'm really impressed with it. And if you're, if you're one of those players that... And there's some people... I like the way critical hits work in the system, but there's people that want more, yeah. right? Hmm. Um, they want more. And if, if you guys are really fascinated by the critical hit mechanics, you want to improve on it, this is a great product. I really want to get Josh on the show to talk about this. Mm, absolutely. Um, uh, because, you know, he, he kind of worked with the community on it and, and, and a lot of us were, sh- he shared a lot. And so I'm, I'm just really eager to get his inspiration for this. It's very yeah, cool. Definitely. Um, definitely. And lastly, uh, from the foundry perspective, we have another new author, uh, but this is one that's actually been doing. Uh, a lot of research recently about Tyranoth, um, and that's Chris Markham with a new supplement that he's published called Tyranoth Taverns. I love these these good fluff supplements that give mm. you this kind of content. Um, this cool product, it provides four unique taverns set in the land of Tyranoth. Um, each place of business has a culture all its own. Um, whether that's a, a tavern full of gnomish inventions, a watering hole for the orcs, a, re- a refined dining experience, or a taste of the exotic jungles of Zanaga. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's really good for any ongoing adventure for your next Tyranoth campaign. Heaps of unique artwork that really makes it a lot of fun. And it's very reasonable at a price of two ninety five. dollars uh, So you guys should go really take a look at it. Mm. Chris, as, a, um, you know, as you say, he does... So much research. I think every day there is something new yeah. about Terranoth that uh, that he talks about on uh, several of the forums, including the um, uh, including the Genesis community group. And uh, I'm just blown away by uh, the amount of, of stuff that he's pulling from from games from long ago, uh, which uh, which is really really cool. Um, so all of those products, you can find these and many more uh, great Genesis Foundry content over at drive3rpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. Mm-hmm. And of course, while you guys are searching the interwebs, don't forget FFG's Genesis Foundry Spotlight, where you can vote on your favorite products being spotlighted by FFG in their monthly article. Indeed. Now, just send an email to foundryspotlight at fantasyflightgames.com with the name of the product you want featured in the subject and your reason for picking it in the email body. Now, while we're talking about the spotlight, a big congratulations to a person that we just mentioned before, Scott Zumwalt, in receiving the November spotlight for his work on Something Strange. Well and truly deserved. Well done, sir. Well deserved. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Chris, let's talk Gamination Con 007. What's the latest? Oh, my. Well, um, obviously, tickets have gone on sale. We've, we've announced it uh, all, all throughout social media. Um, we have some very interesting uh, uh, badge types that are being offered as well. Mm-hmm. 
specifically, uh, we, we have a series of RVG badges that guarantee you a not only a, a four day ticket, uh, which is which is normally sixty five bucks, uh, but for um, for for a little bit more, you can get a guaranteed game with a podcast host of your choice. And I would like to point out that uh, my 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 compatriot and my compadre, the GM Hooli, <laughs> is of course going to be there. He is of course going to be running RVG games, mm. and uh, uh, eleven of those twelve slots have sold. You sir have one spot. One. Forge podcast RVG spot remaining. Wow, no pressure. <laughs> Just one. Um, other than that, um, uh, as we had hoped, the con is well and truly paid for at this point. Um, uh, we're 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 golden, uh, but we and we have sold about half of our available tickets at this point. Wow. Yeah, with a with a, with a month open, so that's absolutely fantastic. Hmm. So yeah, guys. If you if you are listening and you want to meet us, come to Gamer Nation Con 007 uh, this this coming April second through the fifth. Also, considering the theme of of Gamer Nation Con Seven, Gamer Nation Con 007, mm-hmm. license to con. Mm-hmm. Okay, our theme is is espionage. Okay, mm-hmm. and spy crafting. Um, <laughs> it's worth noting that today. As of the time we're recording this right now, at the very least, obviously this is before we release the show. Yeah. Um, but today, the first trailer for the new James Bond film, uh, No Time to Die, dropped today. And yes, it releases, at least in the States, on April 2nd, the weekend <laughs> of Gamer Nation Con 007. Um, I've already had attendees message me like, dude, you need to organize an event at the con that's going to be like a super late night showing of... You know, we we go to a local theater and watch Bond. <laughs> <laughs> and the trailer just, it's, oh, look, I love Bond. I've loved Bond from, you know, Sean Connery all the way through. You know, everybody sort of has a favorite, but uh, I just like them all. So, uh, and Daniel Craig's done an amazing job. Whether this is going to be his swan song, I don't know. I, I think I think it's going to be. I mean, he, and he also injured himself very badly filming this. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. think I think he's done. This is very demanding. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's there. Um, I also have one other really cool piece of news about Gamer Nation Con. Mm, go ahead. I am I am also pleased to make another exciting announcement. Ooh. Are you familiar, Mister Hooley, with mm. the Adventure Writing Academy? I am. I was um, one of the first students to go through the Adventure Writing Academy. So I'm well and truly au fait. <laughs> so okay, so you've, you've been through it. Describe it for us. What is it? Well, basically, it's, uh, it goes over 11 months. Um, it's a monthly lesson uh, where you go through the process of getting involved in, in creative writing. Um, and, uh, you know, I've never done any courses or anything like that in relation to creative writing, and I've certainly run campaigns and things like that over the years, but I've never been able to sort of like put it into, you know, a, uh, a digestible form that could be published. Well, that's the aim of the exercises to get you, um, some experience. And also with the, uh, the, the authors that, that come along and people who are from the industry, uh, that they come and uh, act as a guest student for, um, you know, once a month you, you go through this process and they come along and you can do a big Q&A at the end of the, uh, um, at the, end of the lesson. Uh, but they also take part, which is really cool. And you see how, how they develop and, and what they do in their, uh, uh, in their work. Uh, so, and the, the big thing, which is, uh, it's absolutely crazy and, um, 
you know, I think that it's worth the, the price of admission straight away is the last lesson you get to talk to Jay Little. Uh, who is the developer of both X-Wing uh, as well as uh, the narrative dice system that uh, that we know and love from Star Wars as well as Genesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's also done uh, the stuff from 2D20 from uh, Modifius as well. So, um, you know, that's um, it, is, it can be to some a little bit expensive, but look, at the end of the day, I um, after... Uh, you know, completing the AWA, I started um, working freelance for uh, for FFG, and I know that there are several other people who've uh, who've done exactly the same thing. So, you know, there's no guarantees, but it certainly gives you a, a bit of an and it's an eye opening experience into what goes on in the industry, uh, as well as sets you up so that you know what to expect uh, if you get involved as a freelancer for any uh, game company, not necessarily just FFG. Yeah, there are so many freelancers who will attest to the Adventure Writing Academy. If you guys want to know more, you can head to adventurewritingacademy.com. But the reason I bring it up is, you know, um, uh, one of the one of the one of the staffers for Adventure Writing Academy is, of course, um, FFG freelancer. And at this point, I, I guess he's gold now, or has he reached Mithril yet, Keith? Um, um, for ready for ready fight, he is at Electrum. Yes. Okay, so he's so obviously, but. The 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 number I, I'm almost positive that it's still the number one best selling supplement um, on the Foundry, which Keith is which Keith had. Obviously, Keith is one of the one of the staffers for Adventure Writing Academy, mm-hmm. and I, the reason I'm bringing this all up, Huli, mm-hmm. is because I am proud to announce that Gamer Nation Con uh, for uh, Gamer Nation Con Seven is partnering with the Adventure Writing Academy. Ooh. This means that Keith. And Maggie, uh, who's, who's the head of the Adventure Writing Academy, one of the heads, and is actually a, a professional professor of creative writing, they will be coming down to Plano, Texas for this con. And they are going to be running and registering um, a total of nine events, eight courses, one hour long each, and then one uh, sort of seminar um, that will take place. And of course, like all of our events, these are free. Uh, for any attendee, you just got to register for them and attend them. Hmm. So if you want to get a taste of what the Adventure Writing Academy is about, you want to network with these people, you want to learn and maybe find out a little bit more about what it's about, they are going to be on site at the con running creative writing events. Hmm. So I, I'm very excited to announce this um, and really looking forward to it. Absolutely. Because they did the same sort of thing last year, didn't they, Chris? And I know that it was massively popular. It was massively successful. They 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 were filling up, mm. and 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 that was ad hoc. It was at the last minute because Keith, Keith is a regular attendee, mm. and he was like, "Hey, well, why don't I bring Maggie down and, and we'll, we'll see we'll see what we can do?" And they just threw some stuff together. Mm. This time, we are very much going to formalize it and make it a much awesome. larger endeavor. So I'm I'm greatly looking forward to that. Fantastic, awesome. I yeah, can't they're wait. Even, they're even going to do levels, so it's like if you attend the tier, they're, they're going to have a tier one uh, session and a tier two event. So, so if you attend one, yep. uh, you can then attend two, and it'll build off the other. Basically, ah, very good, excellent. Uh, and yeah. you can also spend some XP on your skills while you're there. <laughs> so if you want to know more about Gamination Con uh, 007, it's pretty easy. You basically just have to go to tabletop.events forward slash conventions forward slash Gamination Con 007. Uh, now, uh, with Gamination Con 007, each of those are separated by a hyphen. 
or you can just go to tabletop.events uh, and do a search for GammonationCon007 and it is the only choice that uh, comes up. And uh, so once you go there, you can buy badges very easily, uh, which are available on the website, uh, as well as uh, see what's on and uh, a little bit about the show as well. Very exciting. Now, while you're um, joining up to uh, to attend with us at Camination Con 007 uh, next year, um, while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of The Forge as well by joining our Patreon? For as little as $2 a month, you can get access to our Discord server. Um, higher tiers provide uh, priority in your games and rules questions being asked on the show with our largest tier not only providing you with a special thank you uh, as you would have heard at the top of the show uh, but also a special monthly get together with either Chris or I to discuss your foundry product or your ongoing campaign. Uh, All of your donations uh, help the podcast directly so that we can continue to provide you with the excellent regular content that we hopefully you're all enjoying. Mm -hmm. That is 100% correct, Uli. I hope I'm enjoying it, so I hope they enjoy it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, honestly, guys, join the Forge community. Um, uh, Head to uh, become a supporter. Head to patreon.com slash Forge Genesis. And if it's within your means, we'd love your support if you like the work we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and thank you also to our first Patreons uh, for your support. Uh, it really is appreciated. Uh, the uh, the guys have um, really taken to Discord like you wouldn't believe. Lots of questions going on. Uh, and that's not necessarily with our involvement. They, <laughs> they've created this community amongst themselves, which is great. And that's exactly what we're aiming to do. Um, so, um, yeah, and it, it's the Discord channel is just so hard to keep up with. <laughs> so lots of discussions. So it's really, really <laughs> great. All right, Chris, my mouth is watering for some rules discussions. What about you? I know we've been prattling on for a while, a little uncharacteristic <laughs> for us, but a lot of a lot of stuff to announce and get through. Absolutely. But yeah, let's get into it, man. Um, I think if, if, you're, if your mouth is watering, I think it's time for a dash of some of my special seasoning. <laughs> that was creepy. That was creepy. <laughs> <laughs> let's get into die casting. Die casting. The Forge Podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us all with the powerful set of tools to do so, specifically skills and talents. Our diecasting segment is about closely examining individual skills and individual talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Last episode, we dove headlong into two skills that caused confusion at the table. And tonight, we're going to stick around in skill territory for a little <laughs> bit longer to tackle a diecasting request uh, related on our Patreon Discord channel mm-hmm. um, uh, by listener Archelis. Mm. Um, a, a, so, a social skill that tends to stymie players and GMs. And this is not just Genesis. I see the same problem in Star Wars. Mm. Now, this skill is often uh, misunderstood uh, and misused or underused in some cases. Um, it's, uh, it's often confused with all of its counterparts. Uh, so tonight we're going to set everyone straight by explaining the whens, the wheres, and whys of the negotiation skill. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about basics, Huli. All right. What is the negotiation skill? So the negotiation skill is one of five social skills uh, used in the game. And of that five, it's often mistaken for, you know, for charm, leadership, and even deception checks uh, the most. Uh, Additionally, it's used in all settings. 
Now, the negotiation skill is a presence-based skill. It's in the core rulebook on page 56. Now, the rules say that when your character wants to make a deal, they're going to use negotiation. If coercion is threatening someone, deception is lying to someone, charm is sweet-talking someone, and leadership is telling someone what to do, negotiation is convincing someone to do what you want by giving them something they want in return. Negotiation is basically when your character has something an NPC wants and they have something that your character wants or or vice versa. Now, that something could be something tangible like weapons or goods or vehicles or anything that your character would traditionally purchase. But it might also be something that you can't touch like uh, your or their freedom, for example, uh, you know, trade routes or secret intelligence. I'm talking about Bond before. Uh, amnesty for for a criminal who has evidence against your character's foe or even a peace treaty or ceasefire between two warring groups. Mm-hmm. Now, the description also goes on to say uh, the, the, the skill in negotiation, and this is important, the skill in negotiation comes from getting as much as you can out of a deal while offering as little as possible to the person you negotiate with. Hmm. And this is this is crucial because as we'll talk about in a bit, this is what's so intriguing about this skill to me is the fact that the narrative dice really do tell a mechanical story here hmm. based on what you roll and what that means in terms of that give-take relationship. Hmm. Yeah, but, but there's some good examples, yeah? Yeah, so um, the examples that they give is your character tries to purchase goods or services and wants to haggle over price. Uh, it also suggests that your character tries to sell goods or services um, and turn a profit. In this case, your character needs to use negotiation to perhaps ro- uh, raise the price. And lastly, your character attempts to broker a political agreement or treaty between two parties. Now, these are all great examples of of getting something for something else in some type of an exchange. The book also gives us some great examples of what negotiation is not used for. Now, what are they, Chris? Well, um, first off, you don't use it when your character isn't offering anything Hmm. in return for what they want. Hmm. Like getting something for nothing. Um, is something your character can try to do with other social skills. That's kind of what they're for. Mm. But negotiation is predicated on the idea of an exchange. Mm. You've got to get that in your mind because it is the fundamental underpinning of when this skill should be used and when it shouldn't. Exactly. And uh, and what you're saying there, Chris, again highlights that um, you know that that word exchange. Which, uh, in the context of this whole thing, is so important in understanding the concept of the negotiation skill. Now, in their example, getting something for nothing is quite underhanded and even sneaky. So, skills like deception and even, to an extent, skullduggery are going to be more appropriate. Now, the, the book continues with, uh, with a couple of, of other examples. Uh, one of them is that your character tells someone what to do. Um, now, negotiation has to be a bargain. Um, so at the end of the interaction, the, the opposing party has agreed to do something, not been ordered to it. Now, again, this is more about coercion. And, and to a certain extent, it can be leadership as well, depending on who we're talking about. Um, especially if you're, you know, with coercion, it's especially if you're using force. 
Um, you know, charm if you're asking nicely, deception if there is a lie involved, um, and, uh, you know, as I said, leadership if they're, if they're being ordered. But none of these things are offering something for something else. The last example, though, for when not to use negotiation is quite interesting, I found, um, and it's an important one to remember. Your character wants to buy something for a previously established price. Now, this is yet again another example, and I know that we keep on going on about it, but it's another example of not forcing players to make a check when they really don't have to. Speed of play is going to be vital in this system, as we all know, if we've been running it for a while, as it basically it's going to keep the action going. Uh, if a character is looking for something simple that, that doesn't really matter to the overall story, they just want it, whether it be a med pack, whether it be, you know, um, a, a reload to their ammo or whatever else, depending on obviously the setting, um, you know, don't force them to play another encounter with, you know, a grocer or a merchant. Just tell the player that they find the item, but they're going to have to purchase it for the asking price. Now, we understand that many players um, want to get the most out of their hard-found uh, plundered. What's the word I'm looking for, Chris? Earned. <laughs> That's right. Earned coins, uh, credits, or, or whatever that, um, that they um, you know, will ask to negotiate for just about anything. So, um, you know, however, not every NPC wants to. For example, if you want to go into a supermarket, um, you know, your, your general local store, do you negotiate for the price of milk? <laughs> Depends on where it store is. But no, no. <laughs> no, you, Not you really. don't. No, no, exactly. So sometimes stores are going to have an advertisement, you know, such as we won't be bidding on price or, or they have, uh, you know, a price matching policy. Uh, and honestly, this is more the realm of the check that allows the character to find the item in the first place rather than actually selling it. And this is a, a bit of a nice segue into talking about how the negotiation skill is used mechanically in the game. Yeah. So when we're looking at, at, at careers that have negotiation on that career skill list, mm. um, there's a handful. Mm. Um, from the core rule book, we've got the leader, we've got the socialite, the tradesperson, and the priest. Mm -hmm. um, all, all makes total sense. Yep. Um, what about the expansion books? Well, we've got Realms of Terranoth, which only has one, which is the Envoy. So, you know, obviously in a fantasy setting, it's a little bit more about combat and, uh, you know, killing the, the, the nasties and, and taking their stuff. Um, but the Envoy is definitely sort of more like your diplomat. So uh, they've covered that off nicely there. Uh, so they're the ones that are going to be, you know, entering into trade agreements and stuff like that out of all of the other careers. Uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk uh, offers uh, three of them, uh, which is the Academic, the Con Artist, which is obvious, um, and of course the Risty. Now for those who don't know what the Risty is, the Risty is basically an aristocrat. Um, they are, they're the ones that are at the top of the social chain. And uh, well, they would like to think that they're um, at the top of the social chain. Um, so, uh, so that makes total sense for them as well. Yeah. 
Now, when you've got a, a character with perhaps with one of these careers that's using negotiation and, and making this check, hmm. there are hard, measurable mechanical effects that are specifically called out in the rules. We've been talking about you know how you can use it and how you can't use negotiation in kind of general terms. But hmm. in essence, you can break the mechanical effects down into two areas and really two areas only. First and foremost, negotiation is used to find something. Mm-hmm. And second is it's used to actually trade for something, hmm. whether, whether that trade includes an actual trade of goods or trading money for something <laughs> or trading something for money. Um, you know, but the point is if there's an actual physical exchange going on. Yeah. Now let's go into those a little bit deeply then. Yeah. So we've got some, um, you know, we've got, as you say, we've got finding something. So when you're trying to find an item to purchase, the check is going to be based uh, around the items availability. Uh, and this is called rarity in the game. Um, so, you know, each item that is available for sale that it has a certain rarity value. And that normally ranges from 1 to 10. Uh, You can go higher than 10, but the GM has to do some special things, which I'll talk about in a tick. Um, So the difficulty to find the item is half the item's rarity rounding down in difficulty dice. So, for example, if you've got an item with a rarity of 7, the difficulty is going to be hard, or 3 purple dice. Um, Difficulty dice, if you want to get technical. Um... So, uh, you know, the rules on page 82, they really go into rarity uh, a lot more uh, and even has a great table if you really don't want to do the math. Uh, But realistically, it's just halvant, round down, and uh, you're good to go. Uh, The table that you really want to look at, though, is on page 83, which uh, shows what sort of things can modify the rarity of the item. And that's going to be things like what type of settlement, what sort of industry, and that sort of thing that um, that might be happening where they're trying to find the product in the first place. This is a well. This is a common thing we would see in Star Wars, but but in that instance, it often had to do with planets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, that's one thing that I've done uh, in the past when you know constructing planets for Star Wars when when I've um, you know run campaigns. Um, where I've given each planet their own modifier based on what sort of trade route they're on. You know, if it's good enough for Star Wars to have the same ecology with the same animals everywhere and the same sort of environment everywhere, um, you know, why not have the the same uh, rarity modifier? And uh, I've based that sort of on things such as, you know, um, uh, the sort of people who live there, whether it's on a trade route, um, what sort of environment um, is, is there? Uh, the the government uh, and how restrictive they are, whether it's imperial controlled, uh, and as well as also the resources that are available on the planet. Now, you know, you can go as crazy as far as traveler goes and you can put the, every single different type of item has a different sort of rarity depending on, you know, the planet if you want to go nuts. I wouldn't suggest it. Um, I've tried. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not an easy process. Um, and it, to be honest, it never ever gets used. It, it rarely comes up. It's only if you've got players that are really into, you know, tr- buying and selling and trading in different places. If, if the PCs, uh, you know, are going backwards and forwards to the same place, um, it's really important to do that sort of thing. But it also creates consistency during play, which is really, really important if, you, if you're going to be running a campaign in the long term. You know, you want players that if, they, if they've gone to, you know, Portsmouth and they've, you know, gone there two years ago, campaign time, and they've gone back there, you want them to have the same sort of experience or have an explanation as to why those things have changed. Um, you know, plus, if the PCs get involved in a town, 
for, you know, whether it be a fantasy setting or a planet for, uh, for a sci-fi setting. Uh, they can also affect the economy as well by, you know, investing in, uh, in the town or planet, such as building spaceports or setting up a business or, or anything that might affect trade. Maybe they, they set themselves up as merchants themselves to give a reason why they're going backwards and forwards between uh, villages or whatever else. Um, you know, even, uh, you know, the, the, the effect that the, the modifiers that are giving the rarity make finding that magic sword that, that, that they've been looking for uh, so much sweeter. Mm-hmm. So honestly, negotiation is is this crucial skill for finding things. But you have to remember, it's not just the raw difficulty based on the rarity. There's all these potential modifiers that can go into it. Mm. Um, and it's, as Huli said, page eighty three head there. So okay, Huli, once you know the difficulty, um, and you, you you've got your, your raw base difficulty to find something, and you've got it modified appropriately, mm. then you just make a negotiation check, right? Well, yes, but you can also use streetwise, um, and in some cases, you can uh, you can also use uh, different knowledge skills, um, depending uh-huh. on what sort of it is. Um, so, you know, that's how you find something. You know, the, you trading is something a, a little bit different, um, but um, you know, most of the time, if you're looking for something, it's going to be negotiation. If it's illegal, for example, and we'll get onto that in a tick. Um, but if it's legal, it's a streetwise check. Um, and as I said, in some circumstances, it's going to be knowledge. Yeah. Well, let's talk about trading. Okay. Because obviously mm. once you, once you, if you're trying, once you've, if you've located an item and again, you don't always have to make a check to locate an item. If it's a simple item or easy to find, you may not have to do that. Right. Mm. But you know, once you have an item that you want to actually purchase or trade for or sell, um, you, you need to trade for it. Now, as mentioned earlier, um, trading is when your character has something an NPC wants, or the NPC has something your character wants. Hmm. Both parties want to get the best deal they can, so they really are at odds with one another. Um, or one one might say, Huli, they're opposed. <laughs> yes. Wink, a wink, wink, a nudge, nudge. Um, so, so when two characters are trading for something using their negotiation skill, they they, they are making an opposed check. Okay. Hmm. Uh, so keeping in line with the methodology of this game, uh, the PCs make the check opposed by the skill of the person with whom they are trading. Mm. Now, when that happens, the difficulty dice mirror that of the NPC's skill. That's how opposed checks work. Mm. So to give you an example, um, we have an NPC. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really savvy uh, trader. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a presence of four and two ranks in negotiation. Mm. Now, that would make his negotiation pool uh, have have two ability dice and two proficiency dice when he makes a check. Mm-hmm. Two 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 greens, two yellows. Mm-hmm. When opposed, however, the difficulty for the player, the PC making the check, would be the inverse of that: two difficulty dice and two challenge dice. Mm-hmm. Uh, two red, two purple. I would hate to be negotiating with that NPC. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, but now. Huli, you also, as, as you pointed out earlier, there is one large exception uh, to this rule. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the black market, yeah? Mm. So when you've got the black market, uh, as I said before, you're using streetwise instead of negotiation. Now, that makes total sense because, you know, you, uh, you might be really savvy when it comes to knowing the prices of stuff. But to know the availability and to know where the best deals in the shadier parts of town are, um, streetwise is the the skill that makes the most sense. Absolutely, Huli. Um, 
so, okay, those are the two mechanical ways that you can use a negotiation skill. Hmm. Now, obviously, success is success, failure is failure. But I really think it's imperative when we have this discussion because there are some actual cool physical mechanical things that directly come out of this. Let's talk about advantage, triumph, threat, and despair. Yeah. I, I really, at least briefly, I want to touch on this because it isn't covered in the rules. Yeah, um, What is covered is that when you sell an item, you sell it for a quarter of the price with a successful check. Half the price with two successes and three quarters of the price with three or more successes. Mm. Okay, But what about when you're buying goods? Mm. Because there's, there's nothing directly in the core rules about that. No. So, look, the rule of thumb here is we suggest, um, you know, it comes directly from the Star Wars RPG. Um, which uh, means that for each success, you drop the price of the item by 5%, up to a maximum of 50%. Uh, so, you know, if the chances of you getting 10 successes are fairly minimal, but I've seen it happen once. <laughs> so it is still possible. <laughs> um, so, And the reason why I put that 50% is because obviously it costs someone 50% of, uh, you know, 50% of the actual, uh, I guess, the, the sale price. So the retail price is different from the, uh, the cost price, what it would cost for a merchant to, to buy the product in the first place. Um, yeah. And uh, if you're a merchant and you're giving away something for 50% off, remember that because if there is any threats that come in, he's going to basically be telling the next trader that he runs into, watch out for these people and charge more. Um, exactly. You know, don't exactly. use those threats to, to go, yeah, this is what's going to happen for this or it's going to be a shoddy product. Just hold on to that and just say, no worries, I'll bank that. And players get so narky <laughs> when you do that. <laughs> they they yes, love it. They sort of they squirm in their seat. It's amazing. <laughs> you're, you're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. And and this is where that that mechanical uh, benefit really comes into play. St- when it comes to threat and despair, stick it in your pocket. Mm. All right. Mm. You know, and and seriously, it could be sessions later. Sessions later. That they go to buy something or sell something, and all of a sudden you throw two setback dice onto their check. And it's like, <laughs> why am I getting these setback dice? It's like, well, you remember that trader you fleeced back in so and so, so and so place? And you remember those threat you rolled? Yeah, he uh, he knows this guy and told him about you. So, uh, yeah, uh, he, he's prepared for you. Yep. And and you pull it out like that. And then despair, you can have a great time with that. <laughs> you could have like, you know, oh, my God, the merchant's this guy's brother. And he he, shut, he, he shuts you down completely. Maybe that results in a, a fully upgraded difficulty. Or maybe it results in in your your negotiating prowess and your fleecing capability to be spread to every merchant in the system or in the city. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there's, yep. there's a lot of great stuff you could do with threat and, and despair. But what about advantage and triumph? Well, look, advantage, um, what they suggest in, in Star Wars is that there is some sort of special boon that, that goes along with it. So it may be that they throw in some ammunition or something like that if they're buying weapons or the product that they have is extra special so it might give like if it's a med pack for example it might give an additional wound when it's used or something like that it can even be that um you know you're starting to befriend the person who you're dealing with and they might give you a special deal later on down the track and that can sort of translate 
to getting a boost eye or two the next time that you're dealing with that merchant. So again, you're using the dice to then add to the story by creating NPCs that are potentially going to be a recurring role that um, you can kidnap later on and um, threaten the PCs that they're going to die. Um, <laughs> because that's what we all do. <laughs> so, uh, But, yeah, it, it adds to the story and it, and it gives the players uh, that little bit of a, a, a sort of a, a, a step in their, their stride uh, to, uh, to say that they've, you know, they've, They've got all these advantages and they've got this new friend or they've got this extra special, you know, the, uh, they've got this particular model of, uh, of uh, pistol, but it's the, you know, it's instead of the DL-14 or whatever, it might be the DL-14D. So it's another level again and they go, it's, oh, look, this is the first one that's been released to this system and things like that. And it just <laughs> adds to that story. Oh yeah, no, it's great. I, I, I love spending advantage. If, if if they get a couple advantage, especially three or more, you know, throw in throw in a special boot. You know, if they're buying a gun, yeah, well, hey, it's like it's that thing when you're negotiating. It's like you settle on the price, but the merchant oftentimes, maybe because he has backstock of something, will be like, well, I'll tell you what, let me sweeten the pot. I'll throw in a six pack of of stim packs. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll throw in some extra. I'll throw in some extra reloads, and that can make them feel real good. Another thing too, um, especially useful for fantasy settings, mm -hmm. um, spending advantage um, is um, merchants often have relationships with other establishments in town. So it's, it's like I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Let's close the deal right now. I'll sell you the sword, and I'll talk to my brother, who's the innkeeper across the street. I'll get you guys a free room for the night. Mm. Okay. And you know, from a GM perspective realistically you're i mean let's let's get real you're you unless you're an insane bookkeeper you're not going to care where they spend the they're like <laughs> oh we go to the end we get a room you're not tracking the money they spend stuff like that mm. so for for them it's like oh yeah we got a free room but for you it's like nothing right <laughs> um little little things like that can really make a difference another thing i've i've done um especially when a triumph is rolled mm -hmm. um on a negotiation check which is is rare yeah. um and unusual is as you, you you put the great idea, especially for small items, of giving it a boost. Like if it's a stim pack, oh, or or a, God, I keep saying stim pack. It's Star Wars for, for a painkiller. <laughs> yep. Excuse me, Genesis. Um, you know, it's like oh yeah, the painkiller heals one extra. This particular one is a special one. It heals one extra wound. Mm -hmm. If they're buying something big, like um like a weapon, mm -hmm. um, you can spend a triumph to be like oh yeah, the merchant didn't realize what he was actually giving you. It's not a regular sword. It has a special quality, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or the, the weapon has a special quality, and that could be, you know, something fun that it just happens to have, like maybe Pierce. Um, but the most common one for me uh, is actually the superior quality, um, mm. which is is uh, really great for weaponry. Yeah. Um, so those are really fun ways that you can also, you know, spend a triumph. Mm. And you know, don't do it all the time, uh, no. but it, it's when, when the when the PCs are really laying out a lot of cash for something, mm. um, that can be a really worthwhile thing. Yeah, absolutely. And look, um, uh, the the other thing, as I said, the uh, the triumph can be also used um, to to have that person then become your best friend. And if because the players are the ones that are spending the triumph, they can say, perhaps this person I used to work with. And again, it's expanding the world so that it's not just a dice roll. You're really adding to uh, to to give that additional flavour to the story. Um, so yeah, and just one last thing when it comes to uh, threat, you can use threat to do some, you know, some nasty stuff uh, if you want to increase the price a little bit. So for example, if they've successfully, you know, managed to negotiate 
for for the price that um, that it's there for. But there may be some additional fees in inverted commas uh, for you know licenses and and stuff like that. And if you haven't actually set up the town or city or, or world yet. Um, and you don't actually know what it is, perhaps if they've rolled, you know, let's say four threat, perhaps it is that um, the the world that they're in has got a really high law level so that uh, open carry of, of weapons is a bad thing. So sure, they can go and buy it, but they've got to basically put it away and they can't open carry and things like that. So just a few other ways to, to talk about it. Okay, Uli, so... We, we've talked about, you know, how you can can mitigate a check and how you can spend the narrative dice results. We've talked about some of the most common mechanical rules as written, raw uses for the skill. Do we have any unusual ways to use negotiation that are still within the rules as written, still raw? We do, but there are, I went looking through all the books to, to try to find a way, and there's only one. Now, in the back of the book, and this is something that, you know, superheroes gets mentioned a lot. Um, as, as one of the tones. But there's several others in there as well. And one of them is the intrigue tone. Ah. Um, and they give, they give a special uh, mention of like additional rules to use in tones. Uh, you know, for the supers, it's uh, that basically you have, if you roll the triumph and you've got a supers uh, attribute, that uh, you would get to roll, you know, it becomes open-ended. And if you roll another triumph, it becomes an open-ended again, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's, it's exploding dice, yes. Yeah, exactly. So what happens for, uh, for intrigue is it's called a major revelation. Now, what the rules say is that when a major revelation appears, you can use this rule to see if your PCs recognize how important the revelation is. So one PC should make an average knowledge negotiation or perception check, depending on what best fits the situation. So if this check is successful, the PCs uh, see, or the PC, should I say, uh, sees a way to use the revelation to their advantage. And the group upgrades the ability of checks related to that revelation until the end of the session. If they fail, they misread the situation and upgrade the difficulty of those checks instead. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting, but I mean, if you're doing sort of your, your murder mystery, you know, Murder, She Wrote, um, Genesis Edition, um, or, so, or something like that, you know, uh, this is a really unique rule that you can apply to, uh, you know, if the PCs don't necessarily get it. I personally wouldn't necessarily use this rule um, because I much prefer to sort of like, rather than have the PCs, you know, uh, if they don't get it and they have to roll and then suddenly they, they're penalised majorly, is that really in sort of the, you know, going on with the methodology of the game? I don't know. But I mean, I guess that if you... Uh, setting the expectation from the start and tell people that this is what's going to be used when there is one of these revelations, um, then, you know, they, they know what to expect when it happens, I guess. Interesting. Mm. Huh. Okay. Well, okay, so rounding out the rules is written discussion of, mm. of negotiation, yep. um, are there any, uh, let's, let's talk species and talents. Are there any species um, in the published materials that get a free rank? If you want to make a negotiation monkey, is there any, 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 any species or archetype that, that gives you a free rank in that? There is only two that I can find, and both are from uh, Realms of Terranoth, 
and that's the Highborn Elves and uh, Forge Dwarves. So uh, they are the only two that I could find that actually get a negotiation as part of uh, their package. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Mm. Um, as far as talents, there, there's there's a ton of talents in in all the published materials actually for social skills, but mm. there holy, there's only four talents that specifically reference or or call out negotiation. Mm. Um, they are spread out uh, against, uh, you know, amongst all of the the the, uh, yeah. the setting books as well as the the core rule book as well. Um, you know, we've only got one from the core rule book, which is counteroffer, which is pretty cool. Um, we've got uh, for realms of Terranoth, we've got well traveled, which is really only allowing uh, negotiation to be a career skill. So you know, it, it's not um, actually using negotiation in any sort of mechanics as such. Um, we've then got from Shadow of the Beanstalk, we've got two of them, which is Corporate Drone. Again, it's another one that provides a, uh, a career skill for negotiation. And then you've got probably my favorite, one of my favorite two talents (laughs) in the book, which is Good Cop, um, opposed by Bad Cop, which doesn't use it. It's all about, um, coercion, but, uh, Good Cop uses negotiation as well. (laughs) Very cool. Okay, this is kind of a weird thing to ask because this negotiation, but I do want to ask, do we have any gear <laughs> that can modify the skill or is associated with it? Look, uh, there were a few of them in, in Star Wars, obviously. With uh, There was one that uh, I think um, provides negotiation for – it's perfect if you're um, with uh, a trader or something like that. It's like a staff. I can't remember the name of it. Um, you may have a better idea. but um, staff. The staff of office, yeah. That's the one, yeah. Um, but for the only thing that I can find gear-wise was gilded armor attachment. Um, so, And that's in Realms of Terranoth, page 107. Uh, and what it does is that um, it gives a boost to um, any sort of uh, negotiation check uh, when you uh, use uh, when gilded armor is basically um, put onto your armor. So if you walk in to uh, to the the queen's uh, court, that uh, as long as you've got your good armor on, uh, you'll uh, you'll be getting a boost. So um, so yeah, and that's the only one that mm-hmm. I can find. Well, still, I'm amazed it's even there. <laughs> So, okay, we, we have now exhausted the rules as written in the raw uh, for negotiation. Right. Um, we've, we've, we've talked about how you can use it. We've talked about when you should use it. We talked about what makes it different from the other social skills. We talked about species, talents, and even, shockingly, gear. Um, <laughs> all of this really leads us to providing you with two rules of thumb when it comes to negotiation. And back to back to the, the original request and, and, and question uh, for this that was was proposed by our cellist in our patron discord mm. um, these are the two rules of thumb our cellist that you and anyone else listening needs to remember about negotiation mm. rule of thumb number one the negotiation skill should be the default skill for all social encounters mm. rule number two until it isn't <laughs> So what does that mean, Chris? <laughs> okay, what it, what it means is that look, rule of thumb number one: if a character is look, if a, if a character is trying to smooth talk their way through, it's charm. If they're trying to be underhanded, it's deception. If they're being intimidating, it's coercion. If they're being demanding with some tone of authority, it's leadership. <laughs> but you have to start any social encounter 
with the uh, or a check with the assumption that the default skill is negotiation. Then you let the circumstances modify the skill into a different one if warranted. Mm. Okay. So <clears throat> we because we were all trained by Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> We don't think this way. We think of persuasion, or in this system, it would be charm, as the quote-unquote default skill for social encounters. That's not the case. And you need to get your mind frame out of that. uh, Negotiation should be the default. Until it isn't. Hmm. And, you know, depending on... on, and, and, And when isn't, in those situations I described before. But also, and most importantly, remember, regardless of whether they're being smooth or underhanded or intimidating, if both parties are exchanging something, it should be negotiation in almost every circumstance, regardless of whatever fluff they want to apply to it and how grisly they're getting with whoever they're talking to or how authoritative. (laughs) If there are two things material or otherwise that are changing hands metaphorical or or real <laughs> okay uh, metaphorical or literal then it is negotiation mm. all right yep you know i, I think uh it's, i mean th- things from my gaming history like um you know a pc might say they want to charm the local prefect uh, to provide blueprints for the Lord's manor, okay? Hmm. But if they, if if the PC decides he wants to sweeten that, uh, sweeten that that discussion with a little bit of money, that ain't <laughs> charm. Hmm. At that moment, it becomes negotiation. Hmm. Exactly, um. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, to to use uh, an example from my own campaign um, recently, um, you know, the PCs uh, they wanted to lie to a security guard. Uh, to get access to uh, to the party uh, without an invitation, um, but you know if they slipped him some cash, um, you know maybe they could you know uh, or, or they they do some sort of a lucrative job or something like that um, to uh, on the side. It's not deception; it's negotiation, <laughs> and uh, because there's an exchange of uh, you know the 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 access to the party is what the PCs are getting. The cash or the, the, the job that they're going to do um, for access to the party, that's the exchange. So, yeah, uh, so yeah definitely yeah. negotiation. Hmm. So just those are the rules of thumb to remember. And, and just remember that, Archelis and everyone else, you'll be, you'll be all good when it comes to the raw uses of negotiation. Mm. But hooli, my hooli. Yes. It wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't be die casting if we didn't talk about some non-standard or non-raw uses for this skill negotiation as well. Mm. Absolutely. So we've got a couple of them. So skill blending um, is what I call it. So it's okay. So it's kind of raw. <laughs> you know, but realize that with with clever role playing, negotiation can often be used uh, in place of numerous other social skills, as we've sort of said before. Remember that money and goods are not always what changes hands. Uh, as I said in my example before, you know the 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 access to a party. There's no money. I mean, sure, it might cost something to get into the party, but generally, that's an invite. It's a non physical thing. Um, and doing a job for someone, it's not a physical thing. Yes, it might be worth money, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a quid pro quo. 
you know, there's a couple of good examples that, that we can relate. So the first one is interrogation. So coercion is the default skill of a good interrogation. No two ways about that. But the moment you start offering the interrogated party a reduced sentence, time served, or, you know, perhaps even the ignoring of his offences uh, in uh, exchange for, for giving up info or snitching on, on their, uh, their accomplice, that's an exchange of things. Uh, and it could be easily handled with negotiation. Would it be a little bit harder? Absolutely, because it's not the, the preferred skill. Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, really? Okay. Well, okay, go well, keep in mind in both instances. No, no, no. There's no static difficulty. It's an opposed check. That is true. Good point. Okay. Now maybe, maybe you want to throw some setback die on, mm. but, but ultimately I don't even know if I'd agree with that because that's the thing. Think about your favorite crime drama here. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you get the um when you get the 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 sad sack of a, of a meepish criminal right. who's in there and basically his his uh cool or discipline is just crap yeah. um <laughs> that's the that's the opposed for coercion right potentially and and yeah it's going to be super easy to just threaten him into telling you what you want to know hmm. but when you get a crime lord in there mm. all right yeah um you know, or 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 a thieves guild master um at that point, uh, his cool or discipline is going to be stout, and he's going to laugh at your attempt to coerce or threaten him. <laughs> but a person like that could be very easily swayed with negotiation. Very good point. Yep. Very good point. Uh, the only thing that I can say kind of in response to that is something that often gets forgotten, and it's not mentioned in Genesis at all. Again, it's something that uh, I'm sort of upset that they didn't include it, but it's it's certainly in Star Wars, is that there is always disposition of your NPC. So, sure, your NPC may have only, you know, one in presence, but if they've been, you know, uh, hard-fisted to, to not um, accept anything um, because they've been threatened with their life or whatever else... You can always increase the difficulty due to their disposition. Uh, but what you said, Chris, stands 100% that, um, you know, if you're obviously using a different tactic and, yeah, it's uh, uh, because it's opposed, it's not really going to be affected. So very good point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can you can always add setback die if you if you don't feel yeah. like if you feel that it's it's a a quote unquote harder check even if it's mm. opposed you mm. can still increase the difficulty or upgrade it or add setback die. Yeah. That is true. I mean, absolutely, it's absolutely. It's there. So the second option when it comes to skill blending is one that I like to call mercenary motivation. Now, leadership might well be the default choice, I guess, uh, to you know give a rousing speech to inspire your your company of soldiers before a battle. Or, you know, if they're trying to motivate a crowd uh, is another really good one. But, um, you know, if they're a group of mercenary soldiers, for example, or they're being well paid for their efforts, uh, a good GM should allow negotiation to be used as well in that circumstance. And and I'll tell you why. The reason is, is that, you know, mercenaries... Well, I mean, the the name of them for a start gives it all away because it's, you know, part merchant, I guess. But, um, you know, mercenaries are basically your your hired soldiers. So they're motivated by money. 
So if you're going to um, offer the, to exchange and, you know, maybe sort of say, look, you know, if you stick around for this next part of the battle, we'll, uh, we'll pay you in uh, your weight in gold or something like that, that, um, you know, that you would make a negotiation tick because there's an exchange there help for money. So as soon as there's an exchange there, obviously a negotiation is going to be more useful and, and more beneficial uh, than a leadership check might be. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's our first non-standard or non-raw use for negotiation is skill blending. And those are a couple of good examples. Hmm. The next one, and I absolutely love this, retrying a failed social check. Hmm. So let me, let me explain. Hmm. As a GM, never underestimate the power of greed or self-interest in NPCs. Hmm. <laughs> and, and you can use that by actually suggesting to your party negotiation after a failed social skill check. Hmm. So the party failed to charm their way past the guard um, or lie their way into the records vault. Okay, are they done? Maybe not. The GM can suggest that maybe they try again, but with negotiation. That guard might not have fallen for your honeyed words or your transparent lies, <laughs> but a pouch of coin might be just what he needs. Mm. Okay, And <clears throat> even, even quote-unquote noble NPCs not susceptible to greed still struggle with self-interest. Mm. And remember, negotiation is not necessarily an exchange of money or goods. Okay, mm. the, the, the paladin guarding the holy sepulcher is not going to take your filthy money, all right? <laughs> but if your party makes a side trip to streetwise out some news of the location where the paladin's mentor is being imprisoned, uh, they might be able to follow that failed checkup with an approach to the paladin with some negotiation to trade that knowledge for entrance into the sepulcher. That might just work. Mm. Um so as a GM, I love keeping negotiation in my back pocket when it comes to failed social skill checks mm. um, that obviously aren't negotiation based. Mm. Um, you know, and you can always you can always drop that out and suggest it to your PCs. That's excellent advice. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so non raw uses, obviously mm. skill blending, which we talked about, yep. retrying a failed social check. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Huli. We have talents. <laughs> Look, this, this is the easiest non-raw use of the negotiation skill, you know, is to come up with some custom talents. Now, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there's only four talents that use negotiation by itself or, or somehow relate to it. Um, so, as we do... Let's look at a few talents that we've created for those true merchants of vengeance. <laughs> okay, this first talent that we have cobbled together mm. is called Altering the Deal. <laughs> Influenced by, by Vader himself. <laughs> right, I don't alter it further. Um, altering the Deal is a tier two talent. Mm. Um, activation active, incidental, it is non-ranked. Once per session, your character may spend a story point as an incidental. If they do so, the next negotiation check they make that turn may use coercion in place of the negotiation skill. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Technically, it's not a negotiation <laughs> talent. I know it's really a coercion talent, but it's just too cool. <laughs> 
All right. Um, Perhaps so- now instead we should look at an actual negotiation talent then. But that that's really cool, though. <laughs> I'm going to introduce it in my lexicon, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, as I said, an actual negotiation talent, um, which is kind of in the same sort of vein, um, is uh, we've created it and it's called Flashing the Cash, uh, which is a tier two talent. Um, Its activation is active, incidental. Um, It's non-ranked. Once per session, your character may spend a story point as an incidental. If they do so, the next charm, deception, or leadership check they make, that turn may use negotiation in place of the normal skill. Uh, A true exchange does not have to be made in this instance, even though negotiation is being used. So that's an important little phrase to at the end there because we've already said and the rules clearly say that there has to be an exchange of something. So uh, adding this in there is a really good plan. So this talent, it gives negotiation some, you know, some really fun teeth uh, and it also presents a chance to negotiate even if you can't afford to do so. So if you're strapped for cash, you know, you can still do it um, or don't have what the actual party wants. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if you don't have the golden idol or the brooch that um, you stole uh, and you've got it hidden away and you've been confronted by the bad guys and you don't actually have it, this is a great talent to use. Um, so basically, it's about presenting an air of prestige uh, and negotiation skill that will solve the problem on its own. And we've got one more, haven't we, Chris? You do. Once you're done flashing that cash. <laughs> uh, the other talent we've created, um, I, I really like. Um, and the talent is called It's a Steal with a, with a slammer on the end with an exclamation point. <laughs> it's a steal. Um, this is a tier one talent um, that is ranked um, and its activation is active incidental. Mm-hmm. Um, this was very mm. much inspired by rapid reaction in a sense. Mm. When selling something, with a negotiation check. Again, when selling something with a negotiation check, your character may suffer a number of strain to use this talent to add an equal number of successes to their negotiation check. The number may not exceed your character's ranks in It's a Steal. So, yeah, it's a talent where you can basically suffer strain to get increased successes when you're selling something. Mm. Um, Because it's a steal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and I love cool. this talent. It, it's a, it's a very simple little talent, uh, ranked. But again, with those 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 little tier one talents that get ranked again and again and again, mm. you can build up, you know. And and you know, you might be pouring a little bit of XP into it, but you can get to a point where you can suffer three or four or five strain, mm. um, you know, and get an equal amount of successes on when when you're trying to sell something. So mm. this is a, a great way to use negotiation well um, to garner some really good income for yourself and your party. Mm. And if you're absolutely insane, as we've talked about previously in the show, that um, yeah, Tier 5 isn't the top. You can basically just keep on taking that talent as a Tier 5 talent. So, you know, if you want to go nuts <laughs> and end up getting 10 successes and you can afford the strain, go for it. <laughs> can you imagine if you can't afford the strain? You're like, what's a, what's a strength threshold at? 10. How many ranks does he have? 10. It's like... Well, he sold it for a lot of money, but then he passed out. It was really weird. Uh, indeed, that's cool. Very, very funny. Oh God, what a, what a great way to spend threat on a negotiation check. 
<laughs> it's like, oh yeah, you suffer, you suffer too. It's like, okay, I'm I'm gonna get eight successes by spending eight strain. I'm still up. Oh, you rolled two threat. I'm gonna uh, four threat. Yeah, take two more strain. It's like, yeah, he sold it, and then he just got really excited and passed out. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's great. That's great. So anyway, those are some cool little talents, guys, that we came up with for negotiation. We hope you like them. But we want to see uh, your feedback on them. We want you to get these on the table, play test them, mm. figure them out, make additional suggestions. We want to hear about it. And if you guys want to uh, actually read these talents and maybe download them for your own perusal in mm. a beautifully curated PDF <laughs> created by the illustrious GM Hooley. Where might they do so, Mr. Hooley? Well, they can go to our website, which is forgegenesis.com, which is really easy to remember. Um, or if they're a member of the Facebook group, they can uh, go and uh, download it there. And we'll also put the links up on all the other social media as well, including Twitter. Uh, that, uh, yeah, download them. Let us know. We love to get the feedback. So, uh, yeah, let us know what you think about these and look we're not perfect so if there are some sort of improvements or things that you can say oh by the way that talent's really broken because let us know because we're all going to learn from the experience (laughs) uh, which uh, will help people when they're uh, designing their own talents as well so yeah i know when we create talents for this show guys we don't really have the chance to play test them no (laughs) and if you You've learned nothing else from the shows we produce so far. You need to understand the importance of playtesting. <laughs> so when we, when we release them to the world, that's what we're asking of you. Yeah. Playtest. <laughs> Very good. Oh, brother. All right, guys. If you have any additional questions uh, for us for, for, for diecasting, any particular skills or talents you want us to cover, <laughs> let us know. Head to the social medias at Forge Genesis or email us uh, ForgeGenesis at T20Radio.com. <laughs> So we can get it on the docket. Um, but Huli, I think it's time to pump the bellows and heat things up as we leave this discussion behind and head into the furnace. The furnace. And welcome to the furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now tonight we're going to continue our multi-show discussion on the magic system. In Genesis, now we first covered the bare bones of magic in episode 8, Demystifying the Mystical, part 1, and we're going to continue that deep discussion tonight. Although I'm really not sure whether I'm going to call it part 2, or maybe I can call it Demystifying the Mystical 2, Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) And as usual, guys, we'll be not... We'll be focusing not just on the rules as written, but also how to expand these core magic rules and build upon them. All, of course, leading to a future episode of Demystifying the Mystical, where we're going to talk about fully reskinning magic into something else completely different for your own settings. But before we get there, we have to set the stage, as you will, and we have to ensure that you not only understand the core rules of magic, but also how to expand them within their current skin. And to that end, we spent episode eight talking about how magic actually works. Um, You know, spells and skills and uh, additional effects, as well as, um, you know, the magical maneuvers that are also available in the core rulebook. We also provided a series of magical rules of thumb, uh, numbers one to eight, for the core magic mechanics for you to remember and use when creating or modifying your own spells, your own magic skills, and your own additional effects. And 
I tell you what, it goes without saying that before you listen to this episode, you really need to have listened to episode eight. We're not going to go back and, and retread the, the core concepts we covered there. We're going to proceed assuming that you've already got that covered. So if you haven't, pause this episode. Don't worry, we will wait for you. <laughs> okay, so welcome back. <laughs> so in all seriousness, though, Chris, considering the breadth of content that we covered in, in episode eight, what exactly are we going to be covering tonight? Well, tonight we're really going to cap off the core magic rules discussion uh, with just a few final key areas of understanding um, that perhaps more imperative to GMs than to players and utterly essential to any designer to understand. Mm. We're going to be discussing uh, a few disparate things. First and foremost, penalties when casting spells. Very important to understand that. Mm. Second, spending threat and despair on magic. Mm -hmm. Very, very important to understand that. Mm -hmm. And lastly, how magic skills can and should be associated with careers, mm. all right? Mm -hmm. The bottom line is that episode eight was a lot of crunch. And tonight's episode is going to be a little bit crunchy too, but with some seriously good fluff that focuses on the design and mechanical theory for magic's role in this game. And most importantly, how that is represented through the specific mechanics that we're going to walk through tonight. Mm -hmm. And yes... We may even have a few more magical rules of thumb <laughs> to add to our list. Indeed. So, as we do, let's talk about the boilerplate. So, we're going to set the expectations, as it were. Um, so, let's talk about the core rules versus Terranoth versus the expanded player's guide that, um, that we have <laughs> now. So back when we released episode eight, we, we noted that there were two published products that utilize or present the magic system, and that's the core rules and realms of Terranoth. Now, at the time, that was all that we had, but now we have <laughs> three, and the third one's amazing, um, as, as the expanded player's guide is now out, and it's in our greasy, sweated little heads, while well, mine are every time I touch it. Um, but, uh, you know, as before, while, uh, while we, uh, we will be referencing, uh, Terranoth on occasion, we're going to try our hardest to keep our discussion within the rules presented in just the core rules as, as this is the base design or, or the template for, for want of a better term for magic. But those core rules include what's presented in the core rule book and, um, has been expanded on in the expanded player's guide. Now, the EPG uh, added three entirely new spell types to, uh, to Core Magic. And while we obviously didn't cover those in Episode 8, we are going to revisit those um, heavily in, uh, in future shows. So uh, for the time being, if it, uh, if it matters for our discussion tonight, we will be referencing them um, as appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, now, the other thing as well is, as we mentioned earlier, um, go and listen to episode eight. We've, we've said it before, but we are going to re reiterate uh, that um, be sure that you're brushed up on episode eight because it covers everything that you're going to need to to understand. Otherwise, some of this is probably going to end up a little bit of gobbledygook. So um, make sure that uh, that you are brushed up on that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, be mainly because, as I said, um, you know, the episode, we're going to cover how magic and spells work, how they really operate within the system. Yeah. Okay, so now that we got the boilerplates out of the way, let's get into the meat of tonight's discussion. 
Um, <clears throat> let's start, Huli, with penalties for casting spells. So in in episode eight, we spent a lot of time talking about how spell casting works and, and the mechanics of spells and the skill checks to attempt them. But the one thing we didn't discuss, and and, and we need to quickly, mm. is the inherent situational penalties that are available and, and should be enforced when casting spells. These are extremely important to understand because most importantly, I mean, yeah, you need to know them to play properly, but understanding them really peels back the curtain on design intent for the magical system. Mm. Some, and, and really a golden rule of thumb we'll get to that will inform a lot of magic design for not only expanding magic in its current skin, but even reskinning it later. Mm, absolutely. So the standard penalties are going to be summarized on table 3.23, sound like a lawyer, on uh, page 210 of the core rulebook. Yeah, and all these penalties, they, they either add setback dice to your magic skill checks um, or, or may, may even upgrade the difficulty. Um, and we can go through them very quickly. Uh, there, there are not too many of them. Um, uh, if, if you don't have at least one free hand when you're casting a spell, you get a setback die, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're gagged or you're silenced or you're unable to speak, you get two setback die. Mm. Um, if you're wearing heavy armor that hampers your gestures, which they actually classify as, as armor with plus two or more soak, or if you're simply carrying a shield, um, and, and also they say this includes any, any restrictive outfits that the GM deems to be sufficiently restrictive. That's going to give you a setback die. Mm. Um, and lastly, if you're in circ- and this is very broad, if you're in circumstances that interfere with your ability to concentrate, uh, you know, casting when you're swimming or, or hanging from a rope, when you're, when you're in hand to hand combat with a foe and you're casting a spell that targets a different foe, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you're in those circumstances that make it hard to concentrate on the spell at hand, you need, you're actually going to upgrade the difficulty one or more times. Mm. And that's can be potentially devastating as we'll come to in a bit, <laughs> especially if you're on a rope. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, no, no kidding. But okay, understanding those penalties are great, but but understanding them is very important to the designer. Why is that? Well, what it basically tells us is that magic requires you know speaking or gestures. And I know that this question has been asked in the past. Is that um, you know I think somebody asked you know does magic actually require any sort of verbal or somatic components? In other words, you know they have to speak or they have to gesture. Um, and the answer is uh, yes. And those rules are the the thing which basically tells us that 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 is the case you know it it requires intense concentration i mean there is a reason why that it's an entire maneuver to uh to concentrate on a spell it requires some level it's not an incidental it's not something that you can just do casually it's something that you have to really focus on um so you know that sort of explains all of that and that kind of leads us up to magic rule of thumb, number nine. Magic should be hard to pull off with penalties applied if things aren't perfect. Exactly. The inherent difficulties of spells that we talked about back in episode eight, those assume that everything is perfect, that there's no environmental conditions, no distracting combat. You've got a, a full use of a free hand and a clear voice. You're not carrying a bulky load. You're not wearing any encumbering outfits, no armor. <laughs> if any 
of those conditions apply, or multiple, the GM absolutely must throw setback dice in and or upgrade the difficulty appropriately. Mm. Doing that properly is is crucial, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's basically creating the or the rules themselves are designed so that it um, by including those, it becomes a lot more balanced. Um, you know, the mechanics and magic are. Uh, they may seem a little bit easier to use and, you know, magic can answer is the answer to everything. But there are so many limitations that you have to, as the GM, that you have to be applying um, to give it that balanced state. So, uh, so yeah. Absolutely. Now, spending threat and despair on, on magic skill checks, back in episode eight, we talked about um, how... You know, one casts a spell through the use of a, of a magic skill check, whether that be Arcana, Divine, or Primal, or even, you know, if we're going by Realms of Terranoth, you know, you've got Verse and Runes as well. But um, if they're using, uh, using that through the magic skill, um, a very experienced, you know, Star Wars or Genesis GM might well assume that when such a check uh, rolls threat or despair, that they have a bevy of cool options uh, associated with that, just like in combat. If you're a GM and you're assuming that, you would be very, very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, and the reason you would be wrong is that magic is worse. Mm. (laughs) Much worse. (laughs) It's it's so much worse. That's the bottom line. Um, threat and despair spent on magic checks specifically are much more devastating by design, much more penalizing by design mm. than threat and despair spent on combat checks. Mm. Much, much worse. Now, if you don't know what Chris is talking about, go ahead and grab your copy of the core rules and familiarize yourself with table 1.6-3, uh, which is on page 104. Um, you probably know it really well as spending threat and despair in combat. Uh, it's the bottom one of the two, um, if you're a little bit lost. Now, um, as you peruse this table, uh, remind yourself about uh, these combat effects. Now, as we go through the table, you know, we get our old favourites that, that we know and love. Uh, you know, like spending a threat for the character to suffer one strain, you know, spending two threat to settle the character with with a setback die on the next check, you know, or even spend a despair to damage their weapon by a step or or maybe, you know, make it run out of ammo. But <laughs> with magic, as I said, it is so much worse. God, yes. Um, um, and, and you can see this in the corresponding table that is unique to magic. This is table uh, 3.2-4 on page 212, which highlights this. And to, to, to put some comparison for the, the few examples that Huli just went through, mm-hmm. spending a threat on magic causes two strain or one wound. <laughs> wound. Okay. Um, spending two threat which, you know, in combat would give you a setback die, mm. two threat on magic can actually be spent to get what in combat would be a despair result, <laughs> fully damaging an item by a step, <laughs> um, or even delaying the effect of the spell for a full round mm. um, if, you're, if you're in combat. And that can be devastatingly terrible. <laughs> um, you can have a delayed fireball without actually meaning to. <laughs> oh, right. 
Um, and then a, a despair on a magic check can actually be spent to basically short out the character's magical connection. Like with one despair, the GM can spend that to to just sever their connection temporarily to magical energy, meaning the character can't cast for the rest of the encounter. <laughs> um, like, uh, consequently, uh, the, uh, a despair can, a single despair can be spent for the GM to take control of the spell and pick its target. Okay. Mm. Uh, uh, th- this is, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's so bad. It's so bad. Um, <laughs> and you guys can take a look at the full chart. I mean, Huli, there, I mean, this is, this is awful, awful, awful things in here. It's so much worse than combat. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Just the last entry is enough for me. Uh, <laughs> r- r- remind us. Sure. Um, the, uh, the character for, for two despair, the character completely loses control of their magical energies or draws the ire of their, of their deity, uh, suffering one critical injury. That's nuts. Um, at the GM's discretion. Um, that's, that's insane. Uh, this may instead take the form of some type of terrible or hilarious misfortune, such as temporarily being turned into a, <laughs> into a small woodland creature, uh, being struck by lightning on a clear day, swapping bodies with someone else in the encounter for the remainder of the day. That's just got roleplay opportunity written all over it. Or summoning an avatar of divine or infernal wrath. Whoever does this is having a really bad day, let me tell you. Um, And the last one, if a character is using a magical item, it is completely destroyed. So, um, yeah, if you've you've got that ring, that favorite ring of yours that you're using, um, yeah, don't roll two despairs. That'd be enough for me to to not want to roll a red tie ever, to be honest, or two of them at least. Yeah, that's nuts. Absolutely nuts. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, look, uh, this is a question that comes up quite often when it comes to you know the opposite of that. You know, we, we talk about um, threats and despairs, but when it comes to advantages and triumphs, we're often asked, and I probably get this question probably once a week. Where people sort of say to me, "Oh, look, you know, what is the the story with advantage and triumphs?" Because it's not in this table. Basically, that we get that there's a difference when it comes to um, you know the 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 threats and despairs. But the thing is, is that um, you know the reason why that is is because it, it it's absolutely deadly um, if things go wrong in the in the magic realm. But, uh, you know, the options for magic skill checks when it comes to advantages and triumphs, simply put, there's, there's no real alternate options at all. The, you're expecting to, uh, to use the, the standard options that are available from normal combat encounters when it comes to, you know, the, the, the advantages and triumphs. They apply because if things go great for magic, great. You know, it's, it's just, like, no, just like normal. But when it comes to um, to the the nasties, it's obviously worse. So you're expected to use the the standard options for uh, for combat checks, which is on uh, it's on page 104, uh, which is table 1.6-2. Magic doesn't have any better effects. I mean, if you if you've got a player that wants to sort of be very creative about that, by all means. 
but normally just use the the uh, the table as you would normally for any other check. Yeah. You know, it's as simple as that. Now, this kind of leads us to our next magic rule of thumb. That's right, which is magic rule of thumb number 10 to drive this point home. Magic rule of thumb number 10. Magic should be dangerous and risky with negative outcomes much worse than normal for other activities. Mm. Good GMs, being good GMs, doing good GM things. You guys have lear- often learned to have this, this instinct about, about what is fair and balanced when you're applying threat and despair. Mm. Um, you, you've learned it over years of Star Wars play and Genesis play. That you know when you see a couple of threat on the table or a despair, you know what that means. You know what that 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 negative consequence level should be. You feel it instinctually at this point. Mm-hmm. You have to realize and remember that with magic, those instincts you have have to be thrown out the window. For balance's sake, magic must be treated much worse mm-hmm. with much worse consequences for those negative die results. Get nasty. Magic is supposed to be wildly dangerous. Treat it as such, and so will your players. Mm. Because that's one interesting thing that, you know, you quite often get these people that will say, well, I can add this and this and this, and it's going to be no problem at all, even though that they're rolling four or five dice. You know, I can still pull off that magic missile. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can. But by the rule of averages, you know, it doesn't really matter how many, you know, ranks in, in that skill that you have that you're using to cast the spell. You're going to get some threat in there. You're going to get potentially um, a, a despair. So, sure, you can go ahead and um, create all the havoc in the world by um, casting these these huge spells when you're only, you know, to put it into D&D terms, you're only a first-level character. But there is going to be some massive consequences which you don't see in those games. No. So, you know, one of the things that I try to teach players when uh, when we're using the magic skills is that... Sure, you can go out on a limb, but just remember, try to keep it within, you know, uh, the same number of dice that you're using or half that so that you're going to be getting those off. It's kind of in the same sort of vein as uh, for those people who are familiar with Star Wars and the Force rules. Um, and this is this is an incident that I had a, with uh, with another campaign was that I had a player who spent all of these um, uh, XP on going down the tree of the move power, but only had one rank of uh, force rating. So that meant that they were constantly getting frustrated because they were failing all the time to do their stuff. You've really got to look at it and know your limitations, and if you want to get every single uh, spell off that you're firing, if you've got um, four... Um, skill dice, sorry, four ability dice, you know, make sure that most of your uh, your checks are only going to be around about that two. If you've got some, uh, some proficiency die, you might want to be adding some extra things, but don't necessarily go over three. So, um, yeah, just, just a bit of a, a, a caution, I guess, for, uh, for people who are using magic to, uh, to not overextend yourselves unless you absolutely have to. Or, or, you, or you want to. Sometimes that's the fun of it. But you, you actually just highlighted 
one of the major distinctions. In episode eight, we talked about Huli, how people are in this Dungeons and Dragons magic mindset with the system. And we, I, I don't know why. It's not Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but last episode, we talked about that in terms of things like Vancy and casting, mm. you know, mm. you know, spell mm. slots, stuff like that, mechanical stuff. Let's talk about fluff and fantasy for just a minute. Mm. I'm staring at my bookshelf right now, and I have a plethora of fantasy novels sitting there mm. from numerous authors okay um you know you've got you've got you've got giants like tolkien and 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 uh Leguin, okay um you've got you've got newer giants like like sanderson okay mm. uh, or patrick rothfuss mm-hmm. when you look at different fantasy worlds that are out there and you and you read a lot of fantasy in most of them magic works like this mm. like in genesis it can do redonkulously powerful things, but there is always some ridiculous cost associated with it, or things go wildly wrong, or the caster becomes utterly exhausted or injured in the, just the mere attempt to be able to do it if things go haywire, which they frequently do. Mm. I mean, even even mm. in the 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 first ostensibly real fantasy novel that had a little bit of magic in it. You know, uh, the, their set of novels, which would be the Lord of the Rings series, um, when when our boy Gandalf um, he, he uses magic, he does so incredibly sparing, incredibly sparingly. And when he's forced to use it, he's he's almost wounded after that fact. He's mm. utterly exhausted, mm. right? Mm. Um, because he's been suffering all this. The idea that you can just throw spells willy nilly and 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 not have any risk or inherent consequences with that is very unique. To the Dungeons and Dragons fantasy setting, yeah, I mean, not, not entirely unique, but it's it's very rare. So for me, this concept of magic really represents a foundational underpinning of how magic is commonly represented in fantasy literature, mm. and that's one of the things, uh, without really realizing it first, took me a while to realize it, that really drew me to love the magic system here so much. Damn it, it should be risky, it should be dangerous, mm. and remember that. Remember yeah. it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'll get off my soapbox now. I'm just I get very I get very very passionate about this topic. So, <laughs> but look, and that's uh, you know that's totally fine because it is something that people have to realize is that yes, you can do it. I guess it goes down to um, you know Jeff Goldblum's character in uh, Jurassic Park. Just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay, so uh, now that we've gone through all of this and, and you know, you've spent episode eight um, diving heavily into magic skills, the last major thing to explore for, for core magic mechanics is going to be magic-focused careers. How are magic skills associated with careers now and what best practices and rules of thumb can we learn from the existing ones? So, Chris, would you like to sort of take us through the uh, the existing careers? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the, the, the magic-focused careers we see, uh, first of all, from the core rulebook, uh, page 43, we do have some generalized uh, magic-focused careers. We have the priest, who has divine. Uh, we have the druid, who obviously has primal. Mm-hmm. And we have the wizard, who obviously has arcana. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, and then, uh, the only, the other magic careers we see from realms of Terranoth, um, these careers are on pages 70, 71 and and 72. Mm -hmm. We have the disciple, uh, who obviously has divine, um, we have the, 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 the mage who has arcana, uh, plus the offshoot career of rune master who has runes. Mm -hmm. Um, we have the primalist, uh, who, who, 
surprisingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> surprisingly, has primal. Um, and then we have uh, we have the scholar who also has runes. Yep. It's also worth noting here. I want to bring it up. Hmm. There is no career in Tiranoth that has access to verse as a career skill. Um, it is only accessible as, as a career skill um, by, by by taking the bard talent, which is that that tier two talent mm. in Realms of Tiranoth, page eighty seven. So that's 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 kind of intriguing. That is really interesting. But okay, when we when we go through these quickly, Huli, you, mm. you'll notice a common theme. What do we learn from this? Yeah, look, um, you know, notice that, that each magic career that we've listed here only has a single magic skill on its career list. Now, it is possible for a character to become a master of divine and arcane, um, you know, uh, but what about primal and verse? Sure. Uh, but this is going to require non-career uh, ranks purchased, uh, which is going to be, you know, a lot more expensive. Sure, it's only 5 XP, but, you know, that mounts up. Uh, that's that's an entire tier five talent that you can be having for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the only other way is to, to do it through talents as well because, you know, Bard and Templar, for example, are the only two that, uh, that we have published at this point that provide uh, the, the addition of one of, those, uh, uh, one of those magic skills. And even one of those, which is the Templar, which is something that we talked about in, uh, in a previous episode as well, is that that only? It's it, sure it's a tier one, but it's got a massive limitation in yeah. that you can sure you can cast it, but you can only do it once per uh, once per encounter. So you know that there's limitations as to to what you can do. However, in both the core rules and Terranoth, there are multiple sources of magic. Now, the theme uh, presented assumes that divine users are, fun- are fundamentally uh, different from uh, arcana users. You know, they're, they're the clerics versus the mages. Uh, and each magic skill represents a unique source of magic or, or theme. Uh, and that kind of leads us to magic rule of thumb number 11. Magic rule of thumb number 11 Easy access to magic skills should be restricted by theme as appropriate. Now, what do I mean by easy access? I mean having it on your career skill list. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is important. If if your setting has multiple sources of magic represented by disparate magic skills wielded by characters with radically different themes and roles, then the default assumption should be that a character will only use a single magic skill. And that means that a single magic skill is what should appear on a career skill list when you're in a setting with multiple magic types. So when do we break that rule, though, with magic? (laughs) Uh, When we get into magic reskins. um, (laughs) Well, we'll see that rule of thumb is actually broken quite consistently. <laughs> um, but 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 when still talking core magic rules, when should we break that? Uh, simply put, when the setting demands different magic skills, different schools or types of magic, mm-hmm. but less of a differentiation on theme differences between characters, magic use. Mm. Uh, and, and Huli, probably the best example that I have for that is when uh, and our listeners can go to d20radio.com and head to the backer zone tab and section and actually download for free my my harry potter setting for genesis mm-hmm. um 
this was a great example where I, I developed a, a slew of careers, eight eight new careers, all of which had access to multiple magic skills. Mm. Um, and there were, for for Pete's sake, uh, a half a dozen magic skills in that setting. Mm. Um, but but in that particular instance, you, you know, you didn't have that differentiation. There's not, you know, clerics and wizards. No, they're <laughs> they're all wizards, and they all have access to multiple different kinds of magic. Okay, mm. and. You know, additionally, uh, it, it's one of those things where those were the skill checks they were predominantly going to be making because they're in a Harry Potter setting, and that's what you do. You make magic, you know, different magic skill checks. Mm. So, you know, each each career had, like, career skill access to two or three of those different magic skills, uh, you know, at you know, depending on what the career was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's that's a good example. And and honestly, I, that was still – that wasn't even a reskin, Huli. I mean, I, I created some different skills, but the core magic mechanics were the same. Uh, all the spell types were the same. All the additional effects were the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I just created some new skills and some new careers for that setting. Mm-hmm. And, and that was an example where, yeah, because it made sense for the theme, that rule was broken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but, but again, and this goes back to episode eight, too, it all comes back to theme. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Because, I mean, with your setting as well, you know, you've got, um, yes, you've got X number of, of magic skills. But again, if people want to be able to cast all of the different things, what they're going to have to do is that even if they've got three magic skills, they've still got to split up their XP. So, you know, yeah. it, it's not as though that, uh, like as in Terranoth, that if you've just got a, a caster who is using divine magic that they've just got the divine magic skill that they need to focus on. And if they want to spend all of their XP on that, great. But if you're in a setting that that gives you three, but um, of those three, they don't have access to all of the different spells, you're going to have to start splitting up your XP. And that can be a costly exercise, especially if you've then got all of your other skills to, to look after uh, and additional talents as well. You know, yeah. the, the same sort of thing. It's great to have, a, you know, a fantastic skill in something, but you need to be able to be putting in additional effects that are maybe coming from talents and stuff like that. And we see some of those things uh, that uh, that are appearing in the Expanded Players Guide. You know, yep. that's all of the talents are all magic talents, which um, is absolutely fantastic. So, And they give special uh, abilities, like teleport, for example. So, you know, the, mm-hmm. all of those things, you, you, you've really got to, sure, it's okay to have that, but you've got to look at the XP that uh, your players are going to have to invest across the board. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I, 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 I'm sorry. I had, to, I had to crack a smile when the Expanded Players Guide came out. Right. Um, because because when, when did I do that Harry Potter setting? That was two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. And and at the time when I was writing it, I was like, God, how do I handle things like the Harry Potter version of teleport, you know, which is apparition, um, yep. you know, the ability to apparate, mm. you know, how do I handle iconic things like, you know, the unforgivable curses, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, like, you know, Cruciatus or 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 um, or, 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 or the killing curse of Ada Kedavra, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I handle things like, you know, uh, being an animagus, you know, and, and being able to turn yourself into a wolf um, or a rat? <laughs> Yep. Um, because the, none of the, I mean, you can, you can probably shoehorn those things into the existing spells, yep. but you really would be shoehorning it. And so then I hit on the idea and we play test. It was like, you know what? I'm going to make these talents. Okay. You know what? You want to learn how to operate. It's a talent. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Here, you take the talent. Here's a skill check associated with. You want to learn how to be an Animagus? You want to learn one of the unforgivable curses? You know, it's a tier four talent. Here you go. This one's a tier five talent. Here you go. All right. <laughs> and um, so I, I I smiled a little bit when the expanded players guide came out because they kind of they, they they very much followed that same tact. I felt I felt. What, how do I put this? I felt very validated. Um, <laughs> Where it's like, okay, yeah, you want this crazy magical thing you want to do? Yeah, it's a talent. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the other the other thing about Harry Potter too, and you talk about the XP expenditure. I, I learned this through very hard playtesting. Another thing that made that level of magic skills, where people are, are where players are forced to spread their XP, another thing that made that viable, hmm. is because of that fact, I actually reduced the skill list for the setting. Um, huh? there, there are fewer general skills than you will find in the core rulebook. Right. Um, additionally, I also learned very quickly that nobody, although I kept the skills in, nobody would spend XP on combat skills. Right. Um, and so that also managed to shore up that inherent, you know, XP spread, yeah. um, to a to a point where it was it was it was kind of balanced basically, mm. and and even then the, the the six magic skills that I came up with in the end, um, those were those were hard fought. I mean, in early drafts, I had like nine magic skills. Okay, wow. Wow. <laughs> and it was it was it was playtesting that was like, okay, wow, that's just way too much. The XP is way too thin, mm. and you know, okay, but they're not spending anything on combat. So, and if I remove a couple other skills, you know, or, or combine a couple here we can get it down to a reasonable number and, and six seems to be the, the good, the good choice. And, and they really are thematically different when you get into the Harry Potter lore and, mm. um, yeah. Yeah. It's very, so, very yeah, cool. That's, <laughs> so that, that's, that's when we break the rule, yeah. but generally speaking, mm. you know, easy access to magic skills on Kirilla should be limited to one. It should be restricted by theme as appropriate, but that assumption is predicated on the fact that there are different types of magical energies in the world, that those different magical skills truly correspond to completely different sources of magic wielded by radically different types of characters with different themes. Mm. And to be fair, that's most fantasy settings. Mm. That's true. And we'll certainly get into a lot more of how you can fiddle with that um, in in a future episode. Uh, So, uh, so yeah, and, um, you know, we'll talk more about um, uh, Chris's Harry Potter setting um, along with that. And by all means, um, as uh, as Chris said, go and take a look at that in the back of zone uh, at d20radio.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic little setting. And um, a lot of that, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of that you sort of designed just, you know, it was very in the early stages of, um, uh, of or even before Genesis was even a thing. Yeah, uh, half of it was fully written and designed as a Star Wars conversion. Right. And then when Genesis came out, it was like, oh, crap. Okay, let's redo <laughs> this. Um, uh, but, yeah, I'd been working on it for an extremely long time. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, definitely go and take a look at that. All right. So, look, um, with this knowledge um, that you now all have from from everything that we've been talking about, you know, plus our discussions from episode eight, uh, you should now be able to easily understand and run the magic system uh, with your players. But more importantly, expand on it with new careers and new spells and, and skills uh, unique to your setting. Uh, you know, Chris mentioned um, his uh, Harry Potter setting before, and we talked about that for a little bit. But one that we've talked about on the show, uh, as well as the Inquisition setting, uh, 
which um, does a very unique thing with uh, with um, its its skill design and the way that um, uh, that spells work. So there's uh, there's there's all sorts of things that you can do, uh, and certainly when we get into um, you know expanding on those, we'll certainly be talking about superhero settings, which is what I've been working on. Um, so uh, let's also take a moment, though, like we did back in episode eight, uh, to review our new additional rules of thumb. What's uh, what's our first one that we had tonight? All right. So magical rule of thumb number nine: magic should be hard to pull off with penalties applied if things aren't perfect. Indeed. Now, magic rule of thumb number 10, magic should be dangerous and risky with negative outcomes much worse than normal for other activities. And magical rule of thumb number 11, easy access to magic skills should be restricted by theme as appropriate. So we now have 11 rules of thumb. So uh, we'll, uh, if you go and take a look at the document uh, from our uh, previous episode 8, uh, you will see that we'll have those, uh, those rules of thumb listed. Uh, and we'll certainly uh, mention those uh, in the, uh, the downloadable document, that, uh, which is sort of our companion document, uh, that you can uh, have along with you when you're listening to this episode. Uh, and you'll be able to download that from forgegenesis.com. Uh, under the uh, resources section, which uh, is full of other links and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully that's uh, given people a, a really good uh, grasp of magic at this point. And, and hopefully what's, what's more exciting to me is, mm. yes, you're right. But we have now, at least from my perspective, mm. we have set the stage. We have. The stage is set. The curtains are now drawn back. The players are moving into motion. <laughs> which means that the next time we return to demystifying the mystical, mm. we will begin tackling the elusive reskin. Indeed. Now that we now that we understand the bones, let's talk about breaking them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be a lot of fun to uh, to take part in. So, look, if you've got any questions in regards to magic, let us know those as well, and we might be able to incorporate those into uh, some of the things that we're discussing. Uh, especially if you're creating your own setting as well, uh, that uh, that you might be stuck on something or whatever else, let us know and we can include that um, in our show notes so that we can um, talk about them here with you guys on the show. So, Chris, we have a bit of a special guest that we'd like to talk to now. Is that correct? Oh, yes. We, we teased it earlier, but uh, we have we have a, a new author. Well, new to the foundry, at least, as we'll mm. talk about. He's a, a pretty experienced DMs Guild writer. <laughs> um, but uh, he's got an exciting new product that we've been fawning over uh, uh, last episode. Uh, we first brought it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to talk about it. And so to that end, uh, we're going to we're going to bring on to the show a uh, special guest uh, author, David Morris, mm-hmm. um, to talk about one of his products in Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and so much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mould with their work. Our Breaking the Mould segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. 
Now, tonight's guest over the last three years has published over 30 products on the DMs Guild and Drive-Thru RPG. Many of his titles have copper or better ratings, uh, working with many other artists, editors and writers in the RPG community. He regularly volunteers at no less than 10 separate events each year in his local area. He's also a local coordinator, event organizer and dungeon master for the D&D Adventurers Guild, or Adventurers League, should I say. Uh, he enjoys teaching others the joys of gaming and plans to use those strategies learned through his Adventurers League experience to help grow interest in the Genesis system with, uh, with people in his area, which is great. He's also an instructor for Ashley Warren's RPG Writers Workshop, where he teaches editing for self-publishing. And now he's dipping his toes into the Genesis Foundry pool with his first product, Monstrum Encyclopedia. Like the man's not busy enough. Tonight, The Forge is happy to welcome to his first time on the show, David Morris. David, welcome to The Forge. Hey, thanks a lot. Oh, David, it's so great to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. So, David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your gaming career? Uh, yeah, so I started playing D&D back in the 80s uh, when my cousin came to visit one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just played a quick, like, half an hour game. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, I, I played by myself using scraps of paper since I didn't have dice, and i just throw 1 through 20 into a bucket, pull out a number. If I needed a different die, I'd dump them out, find the numbers I needed, and do it again. Uh, in retrospect, I should have had a different pile for each die. But, uh, um, but on more like the, um, I guess, pro or semi-pro uh, side, yep. um, I started running uh, D&D for the Adventurers League about six years ago mm-hmm. and became a local coordinator uh, for that in my area. Although right. since then they've they've actually gotten rid of the local the coordinator program, hmm. but I still do a lot of the same same kind of functions. Yeah, um, and I played uh, you know I played Vampire and Shadowrun and Rifts and like you know, all the versions of like the twelve thousand versions of Star Wars and <laughs> um, <laughs> you know all all kinds of games. I think it's vital uh, as a like just DM and player but also as a creator to like ex- experience all those different uh, systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Very good. Excellent. Okay, so David, we, we asked this of all of our guests who come on. We want to know what is your first love of Genesis? And what we mean by that is, is you know, as the role player you are, what, what style of game or game setting or perhaps better said theme do you really like to get on the table when you play Genesis? Well, I really like the uh, narrative dice system mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I played it first with, uh, I picked up the Star Wars uh, Edge of Empire beta, mm-hmm. uh, and I just fell in love with, with the system. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of amazing, <laughs> amazing to me. Um, but uh, one thing that frustrates me with D&D, as great of a game as it is, mm. is that, you build a character like I want this character to be an investigator, hmm. and I expect that for you know if you're playing an investigator, you expect them to be decent at that right at first level. Hmm. Um, and in D and D, because of the D twenty and it's kind of flat curve, it doesn't really have a curve, right? Hmm. Um, it, it's kind of hard to be 
very much good at better at that than just anybody rolling a d20 yeah and i think that with the uh narrative dice system it you definitely have a chance to fail and you need that that has to be there but i think you are more competent <laughs> um, yeah um, but as far as like types of games and themes yep um you know i i like um I like every type of game, really, you know, <laughs> but I'd say probably like Undead are my favorite thing to deal with because uh, if you just want to smash things and not feel like, I wonder how their family's going to eat when they kill the bread breadwinner. <laughs> um, undead are great for that, but also they, a lot of them have stories like take ghosts, for example. Mm. Um, you know, they're all about, some kind of like tragic um, story. You kind of have to figure that out to, to deal with them. So, mm. so yeah. undead is your thing basically. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I really, I actually, because I like them so much that I've been avoiding putting them in the monstrum encyclopedia yet. Um, <laughs> because I, if I did, if I let that, if I open that floodgate, it's just going to be all undead, which probably wouldn't be bad. But. No, I don't think it would be bad at all. I think it'd be quite exciting. Oh, I love the whole undead uh, thing and, and playing clerics and, and things like that. Now, speaking of your product, Monstrum uh, Encyclopedia, um, this is your first entry into the foundry. So, so give us the pitch. Tell us about this great supplement of yours. Okay. The Monstrum Encyclopedia is a monster manual that goes the extra mile with the adversary's descriptions mm -hmm. to inspire both the GM and players. Mm -hmm. This growing tone gives GMs example encounters to spotlight the adversary's place in the game world. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I love it. I love the, what you've done with it as far as the it, – it's just so unique – uh, in comparison to some of the other stuff which is out there, I mean, we've got we've got adventures, we've got settings, and whatever else. But we really didn't have anything where there was just uh, like the equivalent of a, of a monster manual. So um, you know that that's that's been different, and I, I think that's a really good selling point for you. Okay, now as was brought up a bit ago, you've done a few unique things with this supplement that we've not seen anywhere else. Tell us about that. Okay, so one of the things that it does is it introduces like knowledge checks to see mm -hmm. what characters know uh, about an adversary that they haven't already learned in play. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, you wouldn't want to use that system. Like if you've encountered a Medusa and you saw someone turn to stone, you don't need to roll. Like I wouldn't advise a GM to make someone roll to know that. They know that. Yeah. Um, but if they've never seen it before, this would let them know weaknesses and behavior and all that kind of thing. Uh, I tried to turn like their, their dead bodies into loot also by like <laughs> after they're dead, you can use this, you know, their skin to do this or their blood to do that or, you know, mm. things of that nature. Uh, it definitely was uh, influenced by the second edition uh, monster manual. Right. Um, and so if you've, if you've looked at that, uh, for D and D, then you'll you'll recognize like okay, this is this definitely was an influence, but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very cool. Now the other thing that that you're doing here as well is that you give a bit of an adventure idea or an encounter idea for for each monster. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's a you know kind of a an encounter. The Chimera has like kind of a shorter encounter. Probably it's you know. 
maybe half an hour worth or maybe even an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, the Medusa one, you know, I just am going with what feels uh, feels good. So I tried to keep it to a page, but if I feel like it needs more, I just do that. <laughs> and I think actually that one could be, um, you know, a night's adventure you could do with adding a little more. Like if you went, okay, first we'll do the Chimera encounter mm. on your way to get to the Medusa, and then we'll do the Medusa encounter. That could probably get you the the night's play. (laughs) Very good. Now, you know, we said this earlier in uh, in the episode. So, you know, with the especially with the Chimera entry, which is sort of like a bit of a teaser product that you've you've put up there. um, I have to ask: Was that maybe influenced a little bit by Katrina Ostrander and what she said in episode six of of the Forge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've actually have like two, two or three pages of notes from uh, from that specific interview. Right. Um, and actually, you haven't yet see. I haven't put up the full uh, digital version yet, but right. I, I have kind of honing my InDesign skills, and I think I've got it to where I can. I'm gonna on the next update. I'm gonna put out a print version and a digital version without too much uh trouble right so nice very good see chris <laughs> i was right <laughs> yeah. so as we mentioned earlier um you you've released product on the foundry before but but uh but, but like, or specifically with the dm's guild we should say <laughs> um you know you've done a, a fair bit of releasing there so can you talk to us because this is something a lot of our listeners are curious about um who may not be as familiar with the dm's guild what are the differences from your perspective between the foundry and the dm's guild uh, okay so i think the biggest one that i would uh, say right out of the gate is that the guild has a lot lar- lot larger um customer base and pool of creators right now mm-hmm. um i mean it's been around a bit longer of course you know D is kind of the elephant in the room. Um, but on the Foundry, uh, it's a lot easier to get noticed for better or worse. Mm. Um, although, if it works like the Guild did, when the Guild was new, um, folks were a lot more forgiving uh, when they saw a product that maybe wasn't perfect. Mm. Um, so I think that we'll find that for at least a while on the on the Foundry that people will be a little more uh, gentle until as we all, as everyone that's creators kind of push the expectations of quality up, mm-hmm. uh, which is with, uh, you know, I mean, Scott and Keith and uh, <laughs> Sterling. <laughs> I mean, all these people, actually, there's a whole bunch of the Starkana folks. Um, it's all, The bar's already set kind of high, but I think that um, you'll have that. The next thing would be um, on DM's Field, you can't do your own setting you have to do uh, either a generic product mm-hmm. or uh eberron forgotten realms ravenloft rag ravnica or uh, oh i mentioned eberron um <laughs> with genesis obviously since it's like a generic uh role-playing system uh that really wouldn't work anyway but it's just really great to have that freedom mm, absolutely now, um, what were some of the challenges that, that you faced um, going into this in the first place? You know, you, you've mentioned these other people. Um, is that a concern, do you think, for 
for many people who are wanting to to put stuff in the foundry. But as you say, that the the benchmark has been set fairly high. Do you think that's intimidating? Did you find it intimidating? Yeah, I think it is um, intimidating. It it was a little bit intimidating for me, but since I've kind of already been beat up over in the in the guild, <laughs> um, uh, I I like wasn't as worried. Plus, I, I've built up, you know, my skills with InDesign and uh, writing and kind of self-editing a bit. Although I need to give I need to give it another editing pass, but I do think it that's the case mm-hmm. uh, because people have a lot of like imposter syndrome anyway. <laughs> uh, and I've, I've actually considered maybe I should put something on there that doesn't have all the frills on it. Mm. That's, you know, basically just a word doc with some headings mm. um, to show people like, you don't have to have this huge like production value. Mm. Just start because you just need to start. Just yep. put it up there. If you get criticisms, that's great because that's going to help you improve. Don't take it personal. Just pull out the uh, the feedback that adds value mm-hmm. and forget anything that might hurt your feelings and then just keep going. Because mm. I think that's something that, that really does affect some people that there is that criticism out there. You know, like anyone in the fan community will, will tell you from, you know, places like Star Wars and, and Star Trek and, and whatever else, that there is always going to be the haters out there. And I think that people have to sort of, you know, take a step back and really look at, you know, what it is that they're doing. Are they happy with it? And as long as they're happy with it, there's going to be other people that are happy with it. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, it's good that, um, you know, you've taken that approach. Uh, so, well done. So, yeah, um, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the, what some of the, the things which are in the Monstrous Encyclopedia. Um, you're intending to, to build on that further as, uh, as you progress, aren't you? That sort of, how's that going to work? Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I, I wanted to avoid giving a specific, like, once per week or once per month uh, thing. I'm also, you know, I have a full-time job. I I am a full-time student. Um, But I definitely want to keep adding, um, adding to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, the next thing I'm going to do, I was waiting until I got the expanded players guide, which I have uh, gotten the mail yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm going to do the Hydra next. And I think I'm going to do a handful of like just human uh, things. Um, to kind of change because I have a lot of kind of like Greek uh, monsters in there, but mm-hmm. yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, I'm I'm in love with your product, so um, you know that's you've got one fan. <laughs> I'm nice. sure you've got that's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our last question to really ask you, man, is what's next for you and the Foundry? What 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 else can we look forward to from you? Okay, so the next thing I'm working on is um, an adventure mm-hmm. uh, set in Dalek, which is a city in the Toru Alps in the far west uh, side of the kind of world that we have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's gonna it's gonna deal with the infernal a lot. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Very very cool. Well, we look forward to that. 
Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, as a final thought, is there any advice that, that you'd give people? Now, I know that we've already spoken about this, but have, would there be any one little nugget of advice that you'd give to anybody that's wanting to submit their work to the Foundry? Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, just do it. Uh, just do it. If you, uh, I'm going to use DMs Guild as an example again, just because mm-hmm. it's like has history and stuff. Yeah. But if you look at the creator MT Black, he's very prolific on the DMs Guild mm-hmm. and has now done stuff directly with Wizards because of his work there. But if you look at the original stuff that he did, and he'll even mention this in interviews and stuff, is that it was basically garbage, right? Uh, <laughs> compared to what he's doing now. Right. And, um, you know, you have, but you have to produce that lower quality, right, to improve the the skill. Mm. Um, it's just a skill, and so you have to you have to practice it. You have to get that feedback, even if it's kind of gives you some bumps and bruises. <laughs> um, take a break, like let your let your the pain go down, the swelling go down <laughs> a little bit, and get get right back on the horse. Uh, you don't learn any other skill, like you don't come out of the gate and you're you're perfect at it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great advice. So um, very good. All right, David, thank you very much again for uh, for coming on the show. Um, and uh, don't forget to everyone to uh, – well, to remind everyone that they can download Monster Encyclopedia from Drive Through RPG. Um, and, yeah, go out and do it. So, uh, again, David, thanks very much for coming on the show. David, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Huli. Thank you, Chris. That was a great discussion. And look, his the product that uh, for a you know for a first time Genesis person, but um, you know as uh, as he pointed out, he has done stuff for uh, for DM Skill before. Um, it's really really good, and I love the way that it's going to expand over time. So uh, very very cool. So um, yeah, thanks to to David for coming on the show. Um, and, uh, yeah, look forward to whoever our next special guest is going to be. So that'll be fun. I know. I know. I, I can't, I can't wait, but yeah, seriously guys, if you haven't checked out Monster Encyclopedia, do so. It's, it's, it's well, well worth it. Mm. But Huli, um, mm. I think it's come to that time where we might need to, uh, hammer out some questions. Mm, I think it's time for, um, Under the Hammer. Under the Hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we will answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role-playing game as it impacts both rules and content creation, and of course, play. Now, quite a few questions this week with uh, a couple coming from our Patreon supporters, which is absolutely awesome. Uh, Now, those guys and gals get their questions prioritised, so if you'd like to beat the queue... Uh, visit patreon.com forward slash forge genesis and become a supporter today um but never fear we will get to your questions in time so please keep them coming so uh chris would you like to read out our first question sure thing uh this one came in from david morris on our patron discord wait wait a minute (laughs) we just interviewed david morris (laughs) yeah we did (laughs) that's what i call commitment right there Indeed. He's a guest author and he's also a patron. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, he is. Good guy. Okay. Well, <laughs> we love uh, you, David. <laughs> David, this is like your episode, buddy. Swear. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, he, he said the following He says, What do you think about doing a tweak to the game for a setting with a lot of social encounters? 
Specifically, having a soak value for stress based on willpower. Having social attacks that have damage ratings and, and you know, argument qualities <laughs> and, and other tweaks like that. Um, what other tweaks might you suggest? Um, so, wow. very interesting question. Wow. That sounds like um, re- ready fight. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I know. Um, I've actually toyed with this a bit. Right. So... Yeah, I mean, your, your thoughts? Yeah, look, if if I was running this sort of setting or this sort of campaign, I think you'd have to use some type of, you know, a specialization system or uh, or break the the social skills into more than just the the standard 5. Now, this is something that that Legend of the Five Rings does really really well. Uh, for those that uh, that are interested, it's on page 143 of the uh, Legend of the Five Rings core rulebook, uh, which is uh, also by FFG, um, and it specifically mentions, um, uh, you know, that if your campaign is more focused on combat, for example, you know, you can uh, expand the the combat skills. Uh, for example, if we translate it into Genesis. Instead of having, you know, just straight out melee or melee light and melee heavy, although that's a good example of of existing specialisations w- within the current rules as it is. But if you were just doing nothing but, um, you know, like you were doing a Highlander type um, type campaign, you might just have, you know, like melee knives or melee pole arms or melee swords, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, the same goes for social skills. Um, in Legend of the Five Rings, they have this skill which is called courtesy, uh, which is kind of a, a bit of a catch-all, um, but, um, you know, it's it's a measure of a character's ability to influence others, you know, outmaneuver their opponents in arguments uh, and things like that. Um, the suggestion is to, to break that down into um, two specific areas, which is gossip and sincerity. Now, you can obviously break down those further, um, but both of those uh, types, gossip and sincerity, both of those uh, form part of the actual skill itself. You know, but they're, they're slightly different in their, uh, I guess, in their approach. And, you know, if you go into Legend of the Five Rings, you can actually, you know, go into approaches a lot more. But this is a Genesis podcast. Um, so, uh, you know, what um, in Genesis, for example, we, we've got the five social skills. But, um, you know, you might want to break down charm, for example, into persuasion and seduction. So, you know, they, they both form part of the, the same skill, but, you know, they, they are slightly different. Now, this would obviously expand the skills substantially. So you may need to reduce the, the combat skills. So you, for example, range would only be ranged. Uh, you wouldn't have the, the heavy and light and the same goes with, with melee. Um, and you might want to sort of bring in skullduggery and streetwise or something like that. So, you know, you can expand, but wherever you expand, you have to contract in some way, shape or form. So I think that would, you know, suit things better and give, you know, PCs a reason to, you know, broaden their skill coverage, I guess, rather than focus on those five social skills. Because if you're only doing a social uh, campaign, that's what they're going to focus on. And therefore, you're gonna, uh, your campaign's going to run a lot quicker than what uh, it would normally do. So... 
you know, uh, slowing down that progression by expanding that that social skill list is, is probably going to be uh, the way I would do things anyway. Yeah. What do you think, Chris? What's your thoughts? So I actually did a little bit of test play. We tried out doing doing a quote unquote soak for social encounters, where we literally, as he suggested, because it makes sense, <laughs> just the, the same way Braun gives you soak for you know your your for the damage you take that applies to your wound threshold. Mm. Um, we, we would have like a social soak that was your willpower uh, characteristic. Mm. Um, it it was very problematic. Now I'll tell you why. The reason being, if if you're running the standard social combat quote unquote, you know successes on the check equate to strain damage, right? Right. Um, the difference between that and combat is that damage just as in combat damage to your wound threshold doesn't just come from uncanceled successes. There's a base damage that the weapon has. Mm. And so that doesn't exist in social combat. Mm. So as a result, nobody was taking any damage. It was it was going on forever and ever and ever because honestly, the average number of uncanceled successes is usually two, maybe three if it's a really good roll. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and if it's just one uncanceled success, you would never ever break that soak. Mm. So you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it if you were going to do it. You would need to find a, a way to seriously have a, a base damage. I don't know how you would do that outside of equipment. I mean, you could do that as, as you know, maybe through special argumentative <laughs> equipment, you know, maybe, maybe you, you know, maybe, maybe you go crazy and you, instead of equipment, you have basically a, um, um, you could, you could call them rhetorics. Okay. So mm. you have to arm yourself with a particular rhetoric. Okay. <laughs> and, the, and, and the rhetoric has a base social damage that you would add your uncanceled successes to. Mm. And it might have other special qualities that give you boosts or auto advantage, depending on the type of check you're making, you know, and just like a weapon, maybe it takes you uh, a maneuver to put away and a maneuver to equip or ready in your brain, a different rhetoric, right? <laughs> uh, you know, that that could be some way that might actually work for you. But just just keep that in mind. A, a lot of people that suggest having a social soak, mm. they don't take into account the fact that your your damage, in quotes, is going to be radically lower than combat because you don't have the base weapon to work off of. Mm. Very, very true. So just consider that. Yeah. I mean, even those argument qualities that, that you've mentioned there, you know, the, uh, uh, those to me sound like talents that, um, that you would, yeah. you know, give you a bonus, you know, once per encounter or something like that. You know, um, I, and I think there are a couple of them that, that exist where it does give a bonus to a social encounter, you know, once per, once per encounter or once per session or, or stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's... I agree with you, Chris. I don't think that I would mess too much with uh, with the social encounter system because then you start getting into that sort of, as you mentioned, with, with those weapons and, and stuff like that that are arguments. And that that doesn't seem like a lot of fun to me. Uh, I don't know. I'm, that may be just my opinion. <laughs> it, it, it could be. Like, like I can envision someone making like a Phoenix Wright setting, okay, where it's like right. courtroom drama to the nth degree, hmm. okay? And if you wanted to do, I mean, and I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm channeling my, my high school years do it in, in, in forensics and, and doing oratory and, and Lincoln Douglas and CX debate. Okay. Right. <laughs> and like, you could, you, if you wanted to do this, you could do it, but it would need to be the focal point of the session. Hmm. You wouldn't have equipment. You would have rhetorics. Okay. Yes. And yep. you would have to purchase them by learning them for someone who trained you how to use them. Right. Hmm. You could. 
you, know, you could have the equi- the equivalent of of attachments um, that would go onto your rhetorics, which could be like you know additional arguments, right? <laughs> um, you know, or reference frames that you know you could only you but but your your uh, rhetoric would only have so many hard points, so you could only learn so much to attach to it. You'd have to equip them and de-equip them, and you're basically just reskinning equipment at that point for social. You could do it. You yeah. could even have, um, uh, you know, you could even have like you know, you know, uh, special equipment, actual equipment, like you know, uh, you know, a, a courtroom suit. You know, which would give you like a, you know, boost die on certain social skill checks or, you know, you know, well-researched evidence library, you know, that you could whip out in an argument that would give you, you know, certain skill benefits. I mean, you Mm. could do this, but it would be a full on setting endeavor to do it, to do it right. And it goes without saying anything you come up with, David, you got to play test the living (laughs) crap. (laughs) Indeed, because I know that at one stage we talked about very, very briefly because we thought it would, wouldn't it be cool to do this, um, is you can do a law and order uh, where you play the street cops and then you play the detectives and then you play... <laughs> <laughs> and then you play the lawyers at the end, and you have three characters um, for uh, for each sort of uh, setting, effectively. But you're just doing it in the one uh, to do Law and Order Genesis. And I, would have, I would have massive speakers set up at the game table, and every time you switch scenes like that, characters <laughs> you would play the dun, dun, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, you would. Um, <laughs> All right, so, um, yeah, thanks for that, David, uh, and thanks for the interview earlier. Um, So hopefully that does answer your question as well. Uh, So next up is an email question from uh, Simon, uh, and who says, Howdy, dear GMs. I have a question about the cost of cybernetics in Genesis and Shadow of the Beanstalk. Actually, this question has been at the back of my head since Edge of the Empire. I get that each new implant reduces the strain threshold by one, and I've noticed the special cases of biroids and cyborgs. However, I still wonder—I uh, still wonder how this really works in game. How balanced is it, and what are the implications of all of that on other aspects of the game? I mean, between maneuvers, talent, social combat, magic, etc., strain is a wonderful but limited resource. Is it feasible with these rules to build a fully or at least multi cybered ups character? A back alley Ronan uh, with two cyber arms, two cyber legs, and a cyber torso, cyber skull, implanted machine gun, wired reflexes, and a supercharged liver. That sounds <laughs> like me on a Saturday night. Um, <laughs> with a, needing a supercharged liver. Um, or is that character destined to ever be easily fatigued, gullible, and slow? Thanks in advance, Simon. Man, I want the supercharged liver now because after most after studying that's like that, I'm the guy who wakes up. My liver's sitting in bed next to me smoking <laughs> a cigarette. You know what I mean? Give <laughs> me that side eye, handing me cab fare. You know. Uh-oh. I'm like that at the end of um, on the Saturday night uh, of Game of Action Con every year, Chris. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the year for, for for men of a certain age, for men of our age, for men of a certain age. Yeah, that, that the, what's, that's one night a year of utter debauchery, and you feel like absolute hell. The, the next and then your 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 dumb ass was was thought you were brilliant by scheduling a nine a.m. Sunday game. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms yeah. of the question, um. Holy, yes. uh, you you are much so more than me a, a huge aficionado of Shadow of the Beanstalk um, and, and cybernetics. Do you yep. want to take this one? Because I know you probably have the answer 
just at, on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, look, basically, uh, Simon, firstly, thanks for the question. I think the simple answer is yes, you certainly can when it comes to, you know, um, build that sort of feasible character with, with all of those bits and pieces, um, but still have uh, a decent strain and, and whatever else. But you may be affecting the, the game balance. You know, having said that, if everybody else is doing it, then you should be fine. Because the, you know, as long as the one rule applies to everyone, the, the game is relatively balanced. Where it will probably come unstuck, though, is that your cybered up character may outshine uh, the other characters who don't have cybernetics. So there's some things that I'll talk about very shortly, which which kind of answer that part of the question. Now, in Star Wars, uh, the number of cybernetic enhancements is, is limited by your brawn rating. So if you've got a brawn rating of three, the most you can have is three um, cybernetic emplacements. Shadow of the Beanstalk, however, is different in that you lose one point of strain for each piece of cybernetics. Now, essentially, that's just as much thematic as it is game balance. But as you can see, you can get a lot more cybernetics because strain is always above the maximum of six in Star Wars for, uh, for your brawn. Cybernetics are supposed to take away, you know, your, your your humanity, your connection to other people. It's you become more machine than than human or whatever race you are. But it's also supposed to be that way so that people don't go crazy and break the game with all of these enhancements that basically are going to make all of your stats hugely outstrip um, everybody else. But it also represents the the less clunky nature of cybernetics in Shadow of the Beanstalk compared to Star Wars. But that's not really answering your question. Now, Strain, you're 100% right, is a resource and it's a limited resource that people have to look after. Ask anybody who uses magic. They will soon tell you how Strain is just so limited, even though that, you know, they can cast whatever they want. (laughs) As one of my players found out the other night, um, he um, he um, fell unconscious twice through um, through casting spells. Anyway, <laughs> now players basically have to respect that strain is the way that it is. You know, they have to understand it. They have to be very very careful with it. But there are other ways that uh, a character in uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, anyway, can cyber themselves up. Uh, and that's where you need to look at G-mods. Now, G-mods do similar things to cybernetics, uh, but there is absolutely no strain cost. Now, if you want to go crazy, you can design other G-mods. Um, there are no rules for it, um, but you can certainly you know, um, uh, re-engineer some of the, the existing ones. But the thing that you have to remember when it comes to G-mods is that when they're installed, they have a chance of failure. And I tell you what, when they do fail, things go very, very wrong indeed. What's happening with the Gmod is you're basically, you're changing the person's DNA uh, to, to do something. So when you're doing that, you know, if something goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. So take that into consideration. And there are certainly rules in the uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk for that. Uh, where when they're installed, you have to make a resilience check, I think it is, off the top of my head. 
Now, the things to consider with cybernetics is that removing the strand cost is totally feasible. However, there has to be other balancing factors. Now, you may consider things like um, special cybernetic viruses uh, that get into the mechanics of the system. Uh, You may want to introduce ways of hacking into those systems. You know, that they all have computers, um, whether they have some sort of modem access or not, that might be in the realm of flipping a story point. Who knows? But, um, you know, that there has to be that other balancing factor. Other things that you can consider, manufacturing faults. So, you know, flip a story point. When they get that installed, it's not necessarily the, the best item that's off the rack. Or maybe there was something that, uh, that happened during the manufacturing process that something has gone wrong. It can then add on to another story to, uh, to get that fixed. Or they have to deal with corporations because corporations are nasty people. And they warranties, no doubt, they will find small print. And that's where you need to go back to um, the social uh, setting where <laughs> where you have to have different arguments to to argue with their lawyers. You know, you've got wear and tear and, and everything that's going to impact it, even like I just mentioned, the warranties on stuff, you know, the, the cyber doc that you've been to to install that bit of uh, hardware was using, you know, that they 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 love to take things on the cheap. And so they bought, you know, the, the run-out model from last year. It looks the same, but it doesn't necessarily have the same sort of uh, computer upgrades and, and stuff like that in it. The best way to introduce those sort of things, though, is through threats and despairs. So you'll let the characters know that they're there, but threats and despairs are where they're going to come out. Uh, so, you know, again, players aren't necessarily going to take those big sorts of risks because they know that they're there. Mm-hmm. The easiest way, however, is through the cost of the item. So if you're going to be removing the strain cost, you're going to have to increase the cost of the item itself because that's going to indicate that um, the technology level is higher um, so that they've developed it so that it's not going to affect your resilience. Uh, so as long as you've got some balancing mechanism, um, you know, go right ahead, as I said before. Uh, you know, do away with the strain and see how it plays out. Play test it. Play yeah, test, play it, test it. Exactly. Exactly. The, the, the FFG lawyers are not going to come in and say, no, you can't. They're not going to break down the door uh, and say, you know, you're not going to have Sam Stewart run into your, uh, your living room and say, I'm sorry, that's not how this game is played. I'm going to be taking these books with me. That just doesn't happen. It'd be kind of cool if it did, but, you know, that's not how it happens. So, look, Try it, play test it, and let us know how it works out. But um, my suggestion is, as I said, yes, it can be done, but you're going to have to really look at the balancing mechanisms uh, and, um, yeah, use some of my examples. Now, one final point, though, is that you can, uh, you know, you may wish to consider that, um, you know, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, You know, this goes back to a balancing of the rules, uh, of course, but there is a reason why cybernetics cost what they do as far as strain goes. Now, this is a process that has been playtested and it was playtested a lot. I know I was there. And, um, you know, it, it does provide a great balance so that, as I mentioned before, you know, you're not sort of um, you know, overpowering other characters in the in the campaign. Now, if you do have players that do have a problem with this whole scenario of cybernetics costing strain, 
Um, point them towards the grit talent. Multiple ranks of the grit talent. Characters can can stay uh, above the curve just by making their XP, uh, you know, provide their characters with that additional strain through the grit talent. Yes, it's an expensive exercise, but as I said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There is a cost involved, and it's either going to come from one place or the other. Um, and I tell you what, if, if that doesn't appease them, um, you're in a world of hurt, but you know, you might want to consider removing the strain cost as you've suggested. Um, but look at things like cyberpsychosis, rejection, you know, to add to some of the things that I was talking about before, or even addiction due to the amount of, you know, rejection medication that, uh, that they may be on. So, uh, so yeah. What about you, Chris? Have you got any other thoughts? God, no, you pretty much covered it as comprehensively as I think anyone could. Um, excellent, excellent thoughts on that. Um, and for those of you who do have questions specifically around uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk or Cybernetics, go to Hooli. He's the man. Um, so, so yeah, no, uh, make, makes total sense. And good question. Good question. Indeed. Um, hopefully that, that helps out, Simon. Mm. Um, lastly, uh, tonight, we got a question from Chris Johnson who posted uh, this interesting little question on Facebook, short and sweet. Um, but some discussion potential here. Mm. How do you, or would you bother, recreate PCs from other games, especially if they're already several levels beyond beginning characters? Boy, mm. howdy. Um, <laughs> That's almost a topic have, within I, itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's almost a show within itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, we, we, we can keep the answer short and sweet as well. Mm. Chris, I don't want to discourage anyone, and I encourage anyone to try everything. In my experience, I have, tr- I have tried to do this twice, and I have assisted, or I should say attempted to assist, another game group in doing it once. Mm. It is, typically speaking, not worth it. Mm. You're never going to get from a different system because Genesis is so radically different. You're never going to get the exact same thing. It's just never going to happen. The best recommendation I can give you is to leave it up to your players. Let your players recreate their characters from their vision as best they can. But they're They and you are going to have to accept the fact that the abilities that they have are not going to match up perfectly or probably even be relatively close. You want to go for theme and tone of the character you're trying to recreate. Um, additionally, I, I don't, I'm not sure what system it is. If it's a D20 system that uses levels, um, what I have found is that a 300 earned earned XP character tends to correspond in experience and, and, and quote-unquote power with about a 7th level character. Mm-hmm. Uh, 7 to 10, um, if that gives you a little bit of, of, of working to go with. Um, would you get up to like a thousand earned XP? That's where you get into your, you know, nineteen twenty level characters at that point. Mm-hmm. So you could just give them extra XP. Yeah. Except our system doesn't break. Um. <laughs> except, except our system doesn't break, and that's the other thing too is they're not going to see that level of power differentiation. They're just not. We've talked about this before. It's one of the great features of Genesis: the fact that you can take a three or four or five hundred earned XP character, throw them in a party with a bunch of beginner characters, and everyone's still going to hold their own really, really well. And that huge XP character is not going to overshadow the others. Might have a few extra tricks up his sleeve. Might have an extra two or three points of thresholds, but that's about it. Mm. 
I mean, that's my advice, Huli. Look, when it comes to uh, people who, and I've been asked this question, um, you know, back in my previous show as well, um, is to, you know, how do you go and recreate um, those PCs? And the thing is, is that if you're introducing uh, Genesis to a new group, use the opportunity to restart your campaign. Uh, I, I think there is just too many, too many problems, too many disappointments that you're going to have from players because they can't do that. And the last thing that you want to have when you're trying to teach people a, a new system, you don't want them to, to keep on saying, well, my character could do this. Not that every playing group would do that, uh, providing that you, you're giving them that, uh, you know, the, the, the rundown before you, you're setting the expectations. You, you really have to look at, um, you know, the, the fact that these systems, and I mean, I'll go back to when I tried to convert from D6 to D20. Um, it just didn't work. And they even had an instruction booklet in there um, of how to do it. It just doesn't work. It really doesn't. So, you know, use the opportunity instead to, uh, uh, to start a new campaign or as Chris suggested, give them a certain amount of XP, get the players to decide, uh, you know, make them uh, understand the rules, uh, get them to, to read through the existing literature that, that exists, whether that be, you know, from the core uh, rule book all the way through to the, the different settings um, and, and even some of the stuff that's on the foundry. Get them to look through that and actually understand the system so that when they're looking at their character's existing powers, they're going to be sort of marrying them up but don't do the conversion yourself let the pcs do it or let the players do it because that means that they're going to be responsible so if there is any disappointment you're not going to um, be taking the blame but uh, you know and i guess it, it goes down to some of the abilities you may have problems with and the rest of them you don't if it is spend a story point and sure they can do it for that particular um you know, adventure or or encounter or whatever else. Yeah, you can break rules if you need to. I mean, that's the reason why story points exist, I guess. So, uh, you know, if you want to do it that way. So, yeah, that's the only thing that I'd like to add to that. Yeah, no, it's all all good thoughts. And Chris, hopefully, that gives you something to chew on. Um, mm. But you know, ultimately, good question and a common one and yeah, a common one. Absolutely. A lot of people are intrigued by new systems, but they're. Uh, less intrigued by letting go of an awesome story and awesome characters they built up. Mm. So, mm. yeah, it's a common, common conundrum, I'm yeah. afraid. I mean, the, the only thing that I could add to that was something that, and this is a very quick story, that this was done to us when I was in high school, uh, that my GM uh, really fell in love with, um, with Rollmaster. Why, I don't know. But anyway, um, he fell in love with it. It is it is a really good system if you know what you're doing with it. Um, but uh, he fell in love with that. We were using D&D. And what's happened is that um, he wanted to convert over and we talked to us and I said, yep, no worries. So there was a magical item that we found in this adventure and then suddenly it teleported us and the laws of physics <laughs> changed. So, um, you know, that's how we converted, uh, which was uh, was another unique way of doing it. So that things work differently in this new world that you're in. So, um, yeah. Well, that's anyway. clever. That's, that's clever as hell. That's a great suggestion. Mm. So oh, how, oh, how fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, good question, Chris. Thank you for asking it. All of you, thank you for your questions. If you guys have questions, be sure to get them to us. You can email us, forwardsgenesis at d20radio.com, or you can post it up on Discord or on any of our social media avenues by searching at Forge Genesis. 
Sadly, Huli, yes. I fear this brings us to the end of yet another show. Indeed. Unfortunately, it is. But we'll be back in just a couple of weeks um, to throw down some more Genesis goodness and shamelessly wallow and root around in the narrative dice system like we do. Like a couple of pigs. <laughs> Big, stinky, socially unacceptable, grunting pigs. Rolling dice. <laughs> But okay, I'm assuming for our next episode, we're going to be diving headlong uh, into that sty uh, and really digging into the newly released expanded players guide, right? Right? Uh, No, no, we won't. Um, But uh, we will be uh, indeed having a coming up episode um, devoted to the expanded players guide. And uh, what's more exciting is that both uh, Sam Gregor-Stewart, who was the manager for the RPG section at Fantasy Flight Games, uh, is coming on to the show along with Keith Cappell, uh, who uh, has been on the show on our first episode. So uh, it'll be interesting to to bring him back and and talk to him about stuff. Uh, And yeah, they'll be uh, both joining us to to answer a whole heap of questions um, and uh, really get into the nitty-gritty about uh, the Expanded Players Guide. Truly awesome. Mm. Uh, but uh, we really want to give our listeners a, a chance to actually get this book in their hands, uh, especially if people have, you know, might be getting it for Christmas. Um, and uh, so instead, rather than uh, doing it straight away after release, um, and also there's there's people in the UK that um, haven't got their books either yet, exactly. uh, as well as some people in Australia too. So, um, you know, we've given them a little bit of time uh, to, uh, to allow them to send in some comments and questions uh, about the book. Um, and as such, we're planning to do this show for um, earlier on. Uh, in the new year, I think we've got it slated down for the uh, the recording is first week of uh, of the new year, which is going to be very very exciting. True that, and in that spirit, all of you listening right now, you may consider this an open call for questions about the expanded player's guide. We are going to have a key freelance developer and the head of RPGs at FFG on this show to talk about the dang book. So for <laughs> Pete's sake, give us something to talk about. Mm. We want your questions about the EPG. You can email them to us at ForgeGenesis at d20radio.com, or you can post them up on our Facebook page, on Discord, or in dedicated discussion threads that we have started on both the Genesis RPG community and the official FFG forums. Indeed. And while you're uh, all sending us those great questions, Questions. We would love to get uh, any other questions that uh, you'd like to answer, uh, like us to answer, to uh, about developing your own content for Genesis, uh, being a GM or a player, or general questions about the rules themselves. Uh, you know, once again, feel free to email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or post it up on uh, any of our social media, um, which includes Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Reddit. Um, and a whole heap of other ones that I can't remember. MeWe. Uh, <laughs> just by searching Forge uh, at Forge Genesis. So uh, you'll be able to find us there. We've also been having some great conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel. And of course, truly dedicated conversations with our patrons on our very own Patreon podcast Discord server. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, definitely. Oh, wink, wink. 
<laughs> so we'd love to hear from you all. And uh, you can also join the even larger discussion uh, in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. Uh, and don't forget to give us a like or follow us as well on any of our social media sites. Um, you can also drop us a review on those sites or on your favourite uh, podcatcher, including iTunes and even Spotify as well, uh, because those things basically take us up with their algorithm stuff happening in the background. Uh, they take us up in the uh, the interest level of, uh, of people when they're searching for stuff uh, that we will go up to the top of the queue. So, um, you know, the more reviews that we have, uh, the, uh, the better the results and the more that we can teach people about uh, the wonderful system we call Genesis. Um, and, he, and amongst all of that, you can also um, visit us on our website at forgedenesis.com. Righto. So, Huli, if hmm. we're covering the EPG in January, what can our listeners expect on our next episode this month? Well, our listeners seem to really be enjoying our uh, archetype and species building discussions, which, um, you know, we have a lot of fun in. Uh, so, we'll be returning to that with a focus on those fast and furious species with high agility. That's right. Just in time for Christmas, we'll be talking about the ins and outs of custom species and archetypes who rely on agility as their primary characteristic. And how to craft the best agility-focused species you can. And of course, Uli and I will each be building our own agility-focused species to inspire you in your own creation. I can't wait for that discussion because I love uh, creating those. Um, but, um, Chris, can I make a Santa elf species or perhaps the species that the Grinch is from? I don't know whether they're very agile, but can I do that? <laughs> you, you do you, Huli. You, you do. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> well, that's a wrap for us. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we hope that you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hooley, may your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com.